Hey, welcome to the Six of Cups. This is a spin-off show of the Six of Swords. The Six of Chalices, or the Six of Cups, is going to be an ongoing series of roundtable discussions concerning itself with one of the main themes of Six of Swords, which is art. And in this case, it's the art of film. The film in question is Hellier. Hellier is an online web series about a team of paranormal investigators, a five-part Invisibles team, you might say, comprised of Greg Newkirk and Dana Newkirk, Carl Pfeiffer, Connor James Randall, and Rashad Sizemore. They get a series of strange emails which prompts them to go out to Kentucky, to Hellier, to investigate. On their way, they are given the help of Micah Hanks, Tyler Strand, Stephen Hart, and John Tenney. The adventure itself is quite sprawling. It spans the origin of Greg's career and goes into how they met the rest of the team and the background with Greg and Dana and by the end of the show even how they got to know John Tenney. These are all fascinating characters and the story itself begins talking about synchronicity. And I'll say this right now, if you haven't seen the show, go do so. Not just because there's about to be a million spoilers, but because you really should see this. I think it's a great show. And I've seen it twice so far. In fact, one of the main impetuses for their adventure are the strange synchronicities surrounding the book Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts by Tao Allen Greenfield. We get into a lot of our synchronicities, our roundtable, our panel discussion gets into the synchronicities we've had. One of mine that was just beyond profound involves a crystal or resin skull that I have taken to Colin Henry or Hank. Hey, Hank. What up, man? That, that's, my, uh, that's my buddy Henry saying hi. And basically, I was turned on to, by one of our roundtable panelists, a discussion with Clyde Lewis... <laughs> and uh, that's all I'll say for now but uh, the next day I ended up watching Hellier quite by seeming accident but as we dig into the analysis of the episodes on this roundtable about Hellier our conversation takes an unexpected turn just like the show does at several points so I'm going to let you find out what happens in the episode that we've recorded today this first of the Six of Cups I just want to say thank you to Greg and Dana and Carl and Connor and Rashad and in a way and a special thank you to Alan Greenfield. Uh, I wouldn't be able to explain this right now, but I got the book yesterday, the 27th of February. It's the 28th today that we're recording and releasing this and we recorded the full round panel on the 26th, the same day that this book that I'm holding, The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, was re was actually uh, put into print. So there's a lot of synchronicities at play right now. And I think what is best to do right now is just to let us launch into this episode. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Six of Cups. This is a spinoff from the Six of Swords. We have a roundtable panel assorted this evening with some of the finest minds in the occult and i think you'll find that i'm not even over over stating or overshooting the target here with that a few of our guests have uh, not done this before in fact this is pretty much a first time for all of us and the topic tonight is 
the online TV show Hellier. And we're going to be talking about all five episodes, so fairly ye be warned, all who enter here, there are spoilers aplenty. So I would encourage you to watch all five episodes, and you can find them on YouTube. Just type in Hellier, that's H-E-L-L-I-E-R. This is the product of Greg and Dana Newkirk, and I'll be giving full credit at the end of the show to the producers and different people that they've had on there, but it's basically four different people, Greg, Dana, and Connor, and Kyle, and their cameraman um, going to Hellier, Kentucky to investigate some really otherworldly investigational type topics. And uh, tonight with us, we have Taylor Bell. Taylor is, uh, I'm just going to read it in the first person. It says, I work at an occult bookstore, which affords me a million opportunities I never thought I would have had for learning. I'm a student of philosophy and the esoteric. I've become enamored with tarot over the past few years and have set out to create my own deck, which will be going live on Kickstarter soon. We're going to have a link for that when we can get that, but I think it's really neat that we have uh, someone who's doing tarot. You're going to find that that's part of our story. Uh, next up, we have Marshall, who you can find uh, by the name Nimza Flugzoig. Oh, and by the way, I'll be giving it all the emails too in the show notes, so you'll find those, but uh, Taylor is, it's, it's hard to pronounce, it's a A-E-T-T-I-C at gmail.com. It's like A-E-T-I-C, yes. Thank you, Taylor. And that's uh, going to be in the show notes. We also have with us Marshall. Marshall uh, says that, uh, what do you get when you take an upper middle class kid, raise him him on Gnosticism and tales of hidden science, burn him out on drugs, then throw him into the secret mandala? You get Nimza Flugzoig, the Martian archaeologist working at the confluence of interplanetary history, <clears throat> implicate order technology, ancient, ancient civilizations, consciousness mechanics, and secret societies through a Vajrayana Buddhist lens. The great window opens again when darkness approaches its zenith. To what above does this below ascend and what stands in between them? And you'll find him at nimzaflugzoig at gmail.com. Uh, I'm going to just drop that in the show notes so we don't have to spell it. But uh, hello to you, Marshall. Hello, hello. And our third and possibly most Walrus-esque guest of the evening is Jake. Jake is uh, Jacob Henderson. He's a full-stack web developer and software engineer who has been researching and practicing the occult arts for over 20 years. He has a wide array of knowledge, particularly in the fields of theurgy, hermetic Kabbalah, syncretism, and angelic evocation. His professional skills include everything from the networks, from network systems to, and security to blockchain development and everything in between. And you can follow him at, on, uh, on Twitter at GDFBacchus, uh, you'll find that in the show notes, and you can email him at the same GDF back as a Gmail. Hiya, 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 Jake. Hi. <laughs> oh, so, um, guys, let's start off. Uh, I'm going to throw it out. Uh, the first question is going to be, what were your first impressions of Hellier just off the bat? And Taylor, why don't we start with you? Oh, man. Okay. So watching it the first time, I was pretty skeptical. Uh, I try to approach a lot of this stuff with a skeptical lens because you know, there's so much of it out there that's uh, fantastical and kind of extravagant. But the more I watched it and the more I kind of sat with it, the more I started to feel like 
a lot of it was genuine and a lot of it was really, I mean, I don't know if there was really goblins running around Kentucky, but the experiences that that crew had in Kentucky and the experiences that they describing or, you know, they, they described other people having, I, I believe that those people had those experiences for whatever that's worth. I think that's uh, going to be the, con- I think that's uh four for four, but before I put words in people's mouth, uh, let's move on to Marshall. Marshall, what was your first initial impressions of this five-part series on YouTube? Oh, I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I thought it was really well done. So big ups to the, you know, the creators. That was a great, great piece of work. And no matter what, it was enjoyable and it was well-crafted. And I think that people get a lot of value out of it, you know, regardless of how you want to come at it. Uh, so I think that as artists and as creators, they did a fantastic job. Do you have anything you want to say about how uh, the authenticity or what your initial feelings of it were before we move on? Uh, yeah. So I, I think uh, that you you spoke for me as well. I think that they had the experiences that they said they had. I mean, they documented it pretty well. And for anyone who's had an experience of the kind of chained synchronicity that they're doing, especially when you get on site and it's like happening to you and you feel almost powerless against it in some way. It's something that's really hard to convey to someone who's not experiencing it. I mean, it's, it's a very intangible, but you can feel it like crazy. And I think they did a really good job of conveying that. Um, Some of the stuff that, I get skeptical with is the traditional presentation of ghost hunter format television. I think that 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 turns me off um, just simply because it became a cottage industry that kind of sucked the life out of the actual topic in some way. No pun intended. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Because people in the beginning, like, you know, me, like I did when I was younger and uh, I'm sure tons of other people who are into this topic did was we just went out and did what they did, you know? And I think that that's really the value in, in this show in a lot of ways is it kind of made things magical again, where it's like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I went out and did that at one time and like, you know, you can get out there and do this and you know, magic stuff might happen to you. Like it's possible. My question coming away from it is, um, why I guess. And so, certain parts of the narrative itself. I I, I grant that it's all true, but certain parts of the narrative make me question the ultimate source of the material and the purpose for which they were set on this quest that took so much attention and is now taking the attention of so many other people. Right. I think that's a a great way to transition because I think we'll be going back around to that pretty soon. And if not, ultimately uh, that might be where we end up again, but uh, that's very, uh, thank you, Jake. Uh, what about your initial impressions before we start diving into the meat and potatoes here? What did you think about uh, the show just off the bat? Yeah, uh, when I first started watching it, I kind of expected more like the ghost hunters type thing, you know what I mean? And I was really impressed by the way that the synchronicities and the way that that's that's how stuff works, you know? And it's it doesn't look very mystical to somebody from the outside but when you're experiencing it it's a whole another matter and like that's another thing if it, if, it, if it wasn't authentic they would have faked more to it you know what i mean 
So I think that we all started off by getting the impression, like at very first, we were all very suspicious just going into it. I think that's something that we all had a kind of immediate reaction to. And I think they, uh, throughout the episodes, they did a good job of playing to that. They had uh, cutaways to like, for example, Connor talking about with the spirit box, you know, saying, oh, well, I wouldn't have believed this myself. But, and then he goes on to explain just in straight matter of fact form what happened and we could all see it as it was happening. It looked too good to be faked almost. Yeah. when stuff like that happens, that's, that's how it happens. Like, you know, that's, that's why I didn't doubt the authenticity of it because if you were going to fake it, you would have made it look like more. You know? Yeah. We could go through rabbit holes with that because maybe it would be like a, a fake within a fake. Like they would know how much not to fake. But I, I think that we can all agree that it was the real deal, or at least it really seems like it to the viewer. And I think that most people will come away feeling like that. Even yeah, if they did fake it, they've experienced it enough to know how to fake it. So. Right. So let's start off by getting into the first episode here. And we'll go around uh, just in order again. Um, we were introduced to the characters of Greg and Dana, and we immediately see in all of the episodes, or there's always that I want to believe X-Files poster, and it's hard to escape not pairing up the idea of Dana and Greg uh, as Dana and Fox uh, from the X-Files. You got the, you know, Greg who's out there saying, you know, he's ready to go. Give me the weirdest thing you got, very much like Fox Mulder. And they start by framing Dana up as someone who's kind of more skeptical and kind of hangs back and really analyzes things from a distance. So I guess uh, as we get into this, Taylor, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you made of the two characters that were first introduced to, Dana and Greg? So I was, I was pretty intrigued by their dynamic. Um, you know, like you mentioned, they, they really do paint Dana as someone who's a little more, she describes herself as standoffish and someone who who kind of takes things with more of a grain of salt. But I, I didn't really get that vibe during the show itself, like after that initial presentation. But I feel like they're, like I said, their dynamic was good. They they have a really good chemistry together and they were able to kind of, you know, use that to, well, to create an entertaining show, uh, you know, at the very least, but to to kind of get around this place, Hellier, Kentucky, and and investigate and kind of, you know, ask people questions, figure out what was going on. And uh, I noticed Dana didn't talk as much uh, with, to, you know, as much as Greg and, and um, uh, Connor and uh, Carl were talking with people, but uh, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of contemplation going on, I think. All right. Marshall, uh, what do you make of Greg and Dana and, you know, how we were introduced to them and how they kind of uh, started off their journey? I think they're consummate professionals and they conducted themselves exactly how you would expect somebody with their experience to conduct themselves. And I think that that is, that's really what I got from them. And they're trying to take this as seriously as they can. And they're, they're, I think for the most part showing you who they really are. Um, and <laughs> one of the things in the later episodes really uh, kind of, keyed that for me. Maybe we can talk about that later, but uh, I think that it was a really genuine presentation. I liked their dynamic. And uh, yeah, I think that 
the level of professionalism that you can see them operate with, I think does the uh, topic and the field itself a lot of justice, which I thought was nice. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, Jake, what about you? Um, well, I totally agree with you on the, uh, him being really the Fox Mulder type, but I don't know about Dana being a Dana Scully type. They more like to me, except the first thing I picked up on, she was doing with the stuff like, well, I think it's like right at there at the beginning of the first episode where she's doing the stuff with the herbs and, and, uh, incense and stuff, you know, so I, I thought they were more trying to present her as more of a, the witchy type, you know? Right. So that was actually one of the things I had written down was I was, I was really curious about, cause that's, so it's Palo Santo Hollywood was what she was burning, but I wasn't sure what those rocks were. They just kind of looked like lodestones or just maybe some other normal looking rocks. They weren't, you know, I, I, I work at this bookstore that sells lots of crystals and usually they're very colorful and you know, they're gems. Right. And she just had these kind of normal looking stones. Yeah. They yeah they, like gravel or whatever to me. Right. But she, they definitely were painting her as more of a, a witch. Even with the altar, there was an altar near the beginning. It was one of the first scenes um, in their house, like a altar with some candles and uh, a, a dollar bill folded up. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I saw that with the Malibu bottle and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that's what I actually because that was like right at the beginning of the first episode too when they're introducing them. So that was that was my initial impression of them. You know, and that pretty much stayed like, yeah, she was quieter than the other ones, you know, but you would almost expect that from her too. So mm-hmm. being the more mystical type or whatever. Right. Um, so we start off in the first episode and what's happening is we're kind of getting introduced to them and they're going over their history and they talk about some of their original ghost hunting cases and they start to get into how they were contacted by this Mark. Oh, gosh. What was his name? No, it's uh, David, David. David Christie. David Christie. Thank Doctor, you. Dr. David. Dr. David Christie. And um, so what did you, uh, Taylor, what did you make of their initial encounter? And was there any synchronicities you had with going into this first episode? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, their first encounter with with David Christie, or well, just the email. In fact, talking right. with them, how they started to get dead, you know, down, led down that road with the whole Terry Wrist thing. I'm wondering uh, what you make of that, and again, any yeah, bad. Sure. So you know, I guess I I probably didn't have any synchronicities with that, but one of the things that did kind of catch my attention was, you know, Greg starts explaining how he used to run this ghost hunters incorporated website. And it was just something they did as kids. They'd kind of have investigations, but it was, it was really informal. It was very kind of amateur. And he got, he got this email to that account, which, you know, by all account, there should be no reason someone would email that account with that kind of email, unless they knew who Greg was outside of that. If they knew his involvement with other investigative projects afterwards. And Christie, you know, David Christie supposedly says that Terry wrist kind of, and you know, actually when I was watching it back, I noticed it sounds like David Christie was saying that his friend Terry wrist put him in contact with a mutual friend of Greg's and Terry's. 
some some other person that wasn't named, and I could be wrong, so so correct me if I'm wrong here. But this other person sounded like the retiree or you know the the retired investigator who said, "Well, I can't really help, but here contact Greg Newkirk." Right, that was a little confusing, but I guess to fill the listener in, uh, because they, everyone who's listening has seen this, but uh, what was happening is they got an email from someone complaining about being attacked and you know pretty much harassed on their property. And what ended up happening was they left their property after a short while um, before uh, Greg and Dana could go down and investigate. So I guess, um, you know, moving towards uh, Marshall here, Marshall, uh, maybe you could fill us in a little further down the road with the story and what you made of what was happening with uh, the whole enigma of uh, what was going on with this Terry Wrist. Maybe say a little bit about that. And again, any synchronicities you had with this? Um, well, first, I, I want to say something about the email because the email is really the central um, that, that's the central item in this in this entire case, right? Is that email? When you really get down to it, it's all about that email. So when I first heard the contents of the email and I saw you know the text of it reproduced in the in the documentary. Uh, my initial feeling that stays till till now is that this email, whatever its source, was written by someone who, a sophisticated person in command of all their faculties, who's interfacing with madness. And that there's just certain things about the way that letter is written that that speaks volumes to me. So whether that means that the person who's, you know, recounting these events is, uh, you know, a solid individual, salt of the earth kind of guy, you know, not one for BS, can do things and, you know, a generally capable person interfacing with something he doesn't know. That's one way to, to say what I'm talking about. But the other way is um, when you're dealing with the paranormal, especially anything that's non-physical, um, at best, you're going to get the trickster, right? So Interesting. So that's, I think people got to gotta realize, you know, when you're dealing with uh, that side of reality, it's always the trickster at best. If it's not something that's out to eat you or you're not your own mind just unraveling, at best, you know, you're going to get the trickster. And it has its own motives that are completely beyond any of our understanding. So I'll grant, I, I believe they interface with something real, you know, and whether this email was written by, you know, some agent somewhere or it was written by a non-physical entity that res, is residing somewhere in the uh, you know, electromagnetic medium somewhere, or it's a guy who's trying to turn him on to a case just for his own jollies, or maybe he, you know, is just trying to disguise his identity and is writing for a friend. Who, who knows? It could be any number of things. All right. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great perspective to add. I, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, Jake, what do you think about, uh, same question to you in any sinks, and maybe you can address um, what Marshall's just said about this potentiality of a trickster force, all three of those, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I'll start with the email itself. Cause, uh, I was really surprised they didn't look at it more critically, you know, like, okay, if this guy's a doctor, 
like they're so they were talking about the website where they still had the pictures of them showing their their medieval weapons and stuff and like so if you're a doctor why is this going to be the guy you contact instead of somebody else you know what i mean plus okay now hellier's out in the middle of nowhere so this guy he's got to work somewhere so what's he driving like an hour or two hours every day just to go to work like I don't know. it the email itself to me which is just weird, like, I wouldn't have believed it, <laughs> you know what I mean? But probably haven't experienced this type of thing a little more. You know, to me, it would have hit a, bu- it hit a bunch of red flags. I'm like, how are these guys, like, and they're running off, driving hundreds of miles to go check into this based on that. <laughs> and <laughs> to a different country. Yeah, yeah, because they were in Canada at first, right? So right, that's a great point because he couldn't even leave because he was going through customs or yeah. whatever it's called, uh, uh, the, the, the immigration, whatever it is. Yeah, that that's a great point. What about the uh, what about the? Oh, go ahead. Wasn't there some delay between the the time they got the email and the time they were actually able to get on site? Wasn't there like some? It was like years. It was yeah. like two years or something like that. Yeah, I think they got the email in 2012. It sounded like. Yeah, and, and they first arrived in Hellier in 2014 or 2015. The way the way he talks about because the the investigation that we see takes place largely in September of 2017, and he right. keeps talking about that it was oh two or three years after the last time they were there. So, I don't know. No, that's great because there are some not you know literal gaps there. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's worth being critical of this if we're going to talk meaningfully of it. You know, uh, they are professional and there also are questions that are raised by this. This is good. Um, I want to I say that, um, you know, it, even just beginning the show for me, there was synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity, which, um, again, now that Marshall's raised the trickster, you know, that, that blanket is over this all. But um, I will say that, Earlier that day, I was at my home magic store. It's called the Enchanted Fox in Medway, Massachusetts. Seemingly insignificant detail. I was using pink and orange post-it notes. And in the very first few minutes of the show, there's pink and orange post-it notes prominently placed in the background. So already, this was pinging for me as relevant. And um, I think it's worth bringing up right now the idea that they return to over and over and over again about synchronicity and Greg and Dana and others like Carl and Connor refer to it as some kinds of signs that you want to say are showing you that you're on the right path and that basically you want to pay attention. You know, that's uh that's, I think the, the general zeitgeist of what the meaning is for synchronicity in this show before I pass it off uh, to Taylor, I'm going to read the Carl Jung quote that they use in the show. It says, uh, synchronicity takes the coincidence of events in space and time as meaning something more than mere chance. So, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to circle around a few times to do this right. But uh, Taylor, why don't we just talk for a second about what you think synchronicity is and maybe uh, just throw out from any of the episodes a meaningful sync that you might have had with this. Okay. Um, well, I, I was 
also going to mention, you, you can certainly blame Carl Jung for, for that. Um, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, uh, synchronicity is kind of like when things come together, like you described, when these sort of meaningful coincidences happen, but they, they happen differently than just coincidences. There's, there are things that are seemingly improbable. And when they happen, especially successfully, like uh, Carl explains in the show, like one after another after another, they just stack and it, it almost makes you go like, what, is, this, is this real? I think Greg at some point was sitting there and it was like, what is happening? Like, what's happening right now? And I haven't had a whole lot of synchronicities with Hellier and my own personal life, except for today, I got into a discussion with uh, one of my so at the shop I work at, there's some tarot readers and one of them uh, was, you know, I brought up Hellier and he goes, oh, that's like uh, that Hopkinsville thing. And, and turns out he had actually been to Hopkinsville and uh, kind of gone through there. Edgar Casey is from Hopkinsville. No. Oh my right. goodness. I so there's, that. that's it. yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And, and I didn't know any of this until I brought it up at work and my boss and this, this reader were talking about, oh yeah, Edgar Casey and, and, you know, the Hopkinsville goblins and stuff. But it was just fascinating to kind of have that that click moment, you know, where I, I had never heard of any of this stuff. And I didn't know anyone I knew had heard of any of this stuff. And yeah, so I mean, that's, I would say, at least a coincidence. Super interesting. No, this is, um, you know, this, the way I look at things is this is the reason that the four of us are here tonight. I mean, we are in the midst. Now that inevitably we've touched on this, um, we are part of the synchro generator in a way. So that's really no accident that that happened today. And um, I'm about to pass it off to Marshall. I just want to say that something uh, struck me interesting, speaking of Hopkinsville and wow, Casey, I learned that this was the origin of the term Little Green Men, which is an episode of The X-Files, actually. It's the first episode of the second season. So that little weird gremlin type uh, hunting critter that is actually the origin of the term little green men from hopkinsville so i don't know if people knew that but that was new to me and of course we have all the x-files sinks that are running throughout this because they're using that poster as a sigil almost i noticed that was something that they were quite effective at but uh marshall why don't you take it from here with some of the synchronicities you've experienced and we'll keep digging into the series as we move forward Synchronicities that I've experienced in, in connection with Hellier? Exactly. None. None. <laughs> All right, Jake. Now, um, and, uh, <laughs> is there anything that uh, you might say that was markedly striking to you about the synchronicities they experienced? Marshall. Oh, uh, markedly uh, significant about the synchronicities that they experienced? Um, well, yeah, the whole thing is the whole story is about synchronicity, right? That, that's what the, that's what the show is really about. Yes. Uh, they open talking uh, about synchronicities, right? Yeah, right. And so it, the show is not about, you know, aliens or little green men or anything like that. This is a show about synchronicity, right? Um, <clears throat> so I think that they, they just showed what that looks like. You know, it, it's been a while since anyone has just shown what that actually looks like. You know, we go through it all the time, um, but there's not a lot of representations in media about this kind of stuff. And so I think that, that the fact that they just showed all of them in order and about how one of these events can play out for 
a person or a group of people. And I think that showing them all together is really the value of it more than any of each synchronicity itself. Because when you really get into this kind of phenomenon, if you've experienced it yourself, you know that um, the weight of all of them together is really what makes it so intense. It's not any one particular synchronicity. It's the fact that so many things are happening in succession and you get the feeling like you're being drawn to something like that. That's really the, the key of it. And so I think that they um, did a good job of showing that, you know, with how they showed the uh, series and sequence of the, the events. Yeah. Uh, before I pass it on to Jake, it does kind of seem like that the initial David Christie doctor, David Christie email almost served as a impetus to generate those synchronicities. And, um, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's not about little green men or anything like that, because, you know, there may be more that's left unsaid. I would definitely agree that one of the strongest esoteric or paranormal threads that runs through this that is most understandable or palpable or, you know, tactically available would be how and just as the uh, the text of the show itself reads out you know, the synchronicities would be uh, that most palpable of things. Not to mention some of the psychic activity too, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Jake, uh, why don't you take it away here? Same question to you. You're used to this by now. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I didn't experience too many synchronicities directly with the show. Oh, uh, There was one notable exception. It was when you asked me to come on. When we talked about it earlier that day, uh, in my Twitter feed, I had, the Mothman popped up out of nowhere. Oh <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, I haven't heard any new Mothman news in quite a while. So, <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, like I said, that's one notable exception. But while I was watching it, yeah, and I'm like, like me and you have had sinks left and right since we met. But. Yeah, no, that, that, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no, let's just, uh, let's focus on the show for now, for yeah. sure. But I noticed there was a marked increase in synchronicities while I was watching the show all across the board with everybody. Like, so it was Absolutely. Like, like a magnet for synchronicity. While it didn't necessarily have to do with anything with the show, but. The synchronicities were all around, that's for sure. After I all, your entire life is just like that all the time. And so, you know, market increases are going to be a real hard thing to generate. That's a great point. It does feel like this show is kind of like the Invisibles graphic novel where that was a hyper sigil. that feels like in a real and tangible way that Hellier is working in our world as that too. And, you know, um, I'm not going to really... I don't see things too much just from the trickster perspective, but I would say whatever cosmological force is working at hand right now, it definitely feels like this is both a symptom and a cause of what we're seeing in our general, I'd say, world that's kind of coming to a birth pain of a new awareness, you know, uh, the re-haunting of the world, so to speak. Oh, I like that. Well, um, yeah, it's... Like it's Definitely, uh, definitely something that's on the rise. I think the more of us 
that are participating just as we are right now, it's, it's inevitably going to butterfly effect. You know, another one of those films, kind of like what they did with the Mothman prophecy. In fact, uh, just to that point, I actually, first night that I finished watching Hellier, I immediately watched the Mothman prophecy after that. Oh. And the next day, someone started talking about things that inevitably were happening in that movie. So, um, yeah, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a quick sync of my own that I had. And this has to do with how they went to North Carolina in the first episode to those alien caves, so-called. And they were saying, oh, this feels like a place you could get abducted in. And oddly enough, <laughs> I've been kind of getting that feeling lately that I kind of want to have one of those experiences in the, in the most uh, uplifting and blessed way possible, right? Just to put that intention out there. But I, I've kind of been getting the feeling like it's not like life is boring or anything. You know, there's cool people to talk with and interesting things happening, things to create and write and etc. But I do kind of feel like this yearning to have one of those experiences. But that said, I had gotten Hank. I had gone down to the Enchanted Fox to do some shoveling for them. Um, one of the three Libras of the Enchanted Fox's eye, and the other two are the two proprietors of the fox. One of them had gone on vacation, and the male one, and I had promised to shovel snow for them should it have snowed. And this was February 13th. It had snowed. I went down, and I refused payment for the shoveling. And she offered me a tarot deck, of all things. Uh, and I, I was like, eh, you know, cool, but maybe we can just wait on it. And I saw this and got a real, this is Hank, the skull I'm holding up, people. I'll put a picture in for people to see it. And later that day after I had got him, he wanted me to call him Henry. I just got this distinct feeling, Hank. And what happened was I saw the skull and I was thinking about bringing it up to her. And I saw a friend on Instagram post a skull looking just like Hank. So I knew to ask and said, hey, could I have Hank? You know, I'm going to take him and set in lieu of payment. I bring him home, and I'm talking to a friend on the phone. I'm, I'm talking with her on the phone, and I go to, and we're talking about Hellier. She lives in North Carolina, so I called her and said, hey, blah, 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 they're in North Carolina. She starts rattling off different uh, paranormal investigators, and as she says, Micah Hanks, I'm sending her a picture. I click send on a picture of Hank, so she says that, and you know that 30 seconds later, after I got off the phone with her, Micah Hanks was on the screen. Oh, my gosh. Yep. <laughs> I, just, show, I just want to say, I just oh, want to say real quick, Go ahead. Micah Hanks is one of the coolest people that I've ever met. He, phenomenal, phenomenal person. And I don't think there's anyone more hardworking than that guy. <laughs> the six degrees of separation has already been uh, shattered. The six cups of separation has already been uh, shattered here because we have someone on the call right now who's actually physically in real life met Micah Hanks. Well, it, it, over over one of these chats, but yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, I thought you, okay. Well, I, good enough. Yeah, participated in, in an interview with him once, but he See? was a very, very cool guy. There you go. See, I mean, it's, and I mean, I guess like in the day of the, 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 the day, the age of the internet, that it's almost as good as meeting in person, almost, but it's damn close. And I'd, I'd say, you know, even tweeting with someone back and forth, the, the wall's already been kind of chinked away at, if you will, but fascinating. So I'm, I'm glad you guys appreciate that, uh, the strangeness there. Let's, um, let's kind of move forward and Taylor, what happened after they got the email is they went down to Hellier. And uh, what were your first impressions of their experience down in Hellier when they went down there 
talking to people at that gas station the first trip when people seemed a lot more outgoing and forthcoming. What did you make oh, yeah. of uh, what did you make of that? So that it reminded me of uh, so living in Minnesota, there's a lot of small towns. Um, it reminded me of just going out to any small town. You know, I I I felt like I could be in Hellier and sort of feel at home. And then seeing all, all these people and their reactions, you know, oh, someone's collecting stories. Oh, let's all gather around because this is something interesting. You know, part of me felt like I wonder if these people are coming up with things or are pulling things that maybe, you know, they're uh, exaggerating or kind of making leaps that, that aren't really there. But at the same time, people just like to tell their stories. And I've met enough people that have you know, uh, crazy sounding stories that swear by them that, that, that say it's totally true. And who am I to argue? I wasn't there to experience it or not experience it. Uh, I, I thought when they went there, um, people were a little more receptive. It was really interesting. The first time they, it, it almost felt like they felt at home there. Like they weren't too out of their element, but then the second time coming back was a little different. Right. Now, let's get into that um, in a little bit. Um, now, Marshall, maybe you want to talk about what you thought of their first trip down to Hellier and what that experience is like. Um, I, I thought it was pretty much like Taylor described it. You know, you just see the townsfolk coming out and just you know, hey, there's a, somebody with the camera, you know, human nature, especially if you don't get a lot of visitors, is to go to the guy with the camera and tell, you know, well, what does this guy want? Oh, he wants crazy stories. Well, you know, my family has tons of crazy stories. And just start talking, you know? And, <laughs> Jake, yeah. what, what about you? What did you, because I think this question is kind of uh, running out of steam already because I think we're all agreeing on it. But what yeah. did you make of their first trip down there? Um, I think I do have a little bit of a different perspective because I used to live in the sort of that area, you know, more on the Tennessee side than Kentucky. But and I lived in the area of North Carolina where they were within with the cave. And, and I know people from Kentucky. And to me it seemed like but yeah, the small town things, everybody's excited to talk to the like who's this? Probably the most exciting thing to happen in past couple years you know but uh, at the same time it seemed to me like they were messing with the yankee city boys to me you know what i mean heck yeah man <laughs> <laughs> definitely got that vibe yeah interesting so i'll uh, i'll chime in and say that i from my perspective i got a very different feeling uh from that and i I'm the one who's like living up in Boston here. So maybe I am the city boy getting a, the wool pull over my eyes, uh, hoodwinked, so to speak. But it really seemed like, at least on that first episode to me, that people were actually, I'm not saying, see, I take a, a middle ground between each of those and say, it's not like they were super excited. They know what the internet is. They know what you know a camera is, but it seemed like they were genuinely forthcoming and more from a story-based perspective, it seemed like they were just kind of excited. Holy crap. It wasn't so much like this guy has a camera. It's like this guy's asking about weird shit. You know, I, I mean, that's to me what it seemed like. They were, they were excited to just share because not many people, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's with the, it comes with the culture. It's kind of um, shunted off into the, the limelight almost. So at least from my perspective, and I'm glad you guys all have those different perspectives. Um, 
for me, it was that they really seemed like they gave, you know, they gave him the best of their ability, which we learn later in the story when they go back and they're talking to a guy on the phone, that old professor guy who found the tracks. He said that a lot of the stuff stopped about three years ago, which was about the time, you know, maybe just before they had gone there. So maybe that activity had stopped. There was that one story that they heard at the gas station and again about the UFO flying over the town to the point where people got bored of it and just walked away from it. Right. So I think that there's further investigation to be done, but who's to say that any of us actually have a real grip on what was actually happening in that town that day? You know what I mean? Well, and like you say, you know, that, that makes me think stories like this, you're going to tell to someone who, some stranger who comes into town because that's non-consequential. You're not going to tell those stories at church. You're not going to tell them at the dinner table. You might tell them with some beers around a campfire, but that's a very different kind of atmosphere. You know, that's, that's a, a tall tale kind of atmosphere a lot of, Absolutely. A lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it just shows how great they are at their job because they went out there and they got all the crazy stories from the people in the small town, you know? And so they, they did exactly, you know, their mission statement, basically. So they go out there and they did a, you know, they got all the cool stories from these people. And you never know what you're going to find when you go out there. That's part of being an investigator. Like, you, you never know what it is you're going to come across. And exactly. That's that was one of the things that they mentioned too, is that at first, some of the people they would talk to, and this comes up a few times in the five show episodes, they start talking at first. People are kind of like, nah, nah, nah. But then they keep bringing it on a little further. And suddenly there's talk about a baby crying in a mine shaft or, you know, uh, a talk about, Oh, you know, this guy happened to, you know, dig up some footprints or that they chiseled off chief cornstalk from the side of the mountain. <laughs> I forgot about the so, corn stuff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in town knew they were there within 20 minutes of me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Definitely. And you get that down. feeling. Yeah. So, Jake, uh, what did you think about um what did you think about the UFO and stuff that was going over the town there? That was That was interesting to like uh, either it really happened or like I said, everybody knew that those people were in town within 20 minutes, so they uh, concocted a story to feed them. You know what I mean? <laughs> it seems a lot of effort, though, doesn't it? Especially with the news recordings and and all the photographs and you know the local news stuff. I mean, who yeah. knows though? Yeah, I mean, but, uh, go ahead. Nobody had a picture of it. It was up there for hours. Nobody had a picture of it. You know, they so, didn't show one picture of this UFO that supposedly hung over the town for so long and people got bored of looking at it and went on about their business. That's a compelling point too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so basically, when they hit a brick wall, so to speak, because they could have been dealing with shysty, sketchy stories, um, one of the next things that uh, we see them doing in the motel room is they're dealing with tarot cards so i'm going to go around uh and ask you guys what you think about their methods of dealing with these kind of roadblocks by using a kind of magical tool such as the tarot and i know that uh, taylor you're creating your own deck so uh who better to start us off with what do you think about that maybe uh, analyze the drawing that they did in the first one I believe they had the uh, hierophant the five right. of cups and the devil 
Yep. And that, that was really interesting because the way that Dana was reading and interpreting those cards is not quite how I would have interpreted them, but I'm also, I wasn't the one in that situation. I wasn't the one feeling those emotions. The Hierophant to me always speaks of culture. It always talks about kind of like the, I think about it like uh, the constellations, the lines we draw around the stars. We're trying to make sense out of chaos. And you know, it, it almost feels like that's what they were trying to do in going to Hellier. They were trying to be that Hierophant uh, element, that, that kind of like, you know, order to the chaos, uh, because that's what they kept finding. And that's, as we'll see later on, that's what kept hitting them is these synchronicities of chaos. And the Five of Cups, to me, uh, is usually about... Ah, it's, that's a tough thing to describe. I always think of it in the light of addiction, um, trying to like being on the verge of letting something go. But the way that Dana described it was you've got these two cups that are, that are, what is it? The two cups that are still full, but these three cups have spilled over and you're kind of, you're too distracted, uh, by the, the calamity of the three cups to really pay attention to what you still have. And that did speak to me pretty heavily with, with what they were doing. I think, you know, if you look at um, how they were feeling their entire experience there, they, they were confused. They were kind of flabbergasted and they were running around, you know, these, these foreigners, so to speak, in a strange land trying to figure out what's going on. And the whole time they weren't really paying attention to the little synchronicities. I think after it, it gave me the feeling like after everything was said and done, they took a look at what they experienced and they said, Oh, this wasn't about goblins. This was about synchronicity. And I feel like then they kind of reframed it to what it became. And I could be wrong. You know, I don't know what they set out to do in the first place, but that just, it, it felt like that a little bit. And then the devil, the devil is fascinating because to me, the devil's not this loss of power or loss of control or, or whatever Dana explained it to me. To me, the devil is your desires. And the things that fuel your kind of egoic drive, like the, the reason that you're doing what you're doing is because of the devil card, the Capricorn energy. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it was fascinating altogether. All right. No, I think um, those are, I think those are good interpretations. Uh, Marshall, why don't you uh, kind of talk about that uh, scene in the hotel room where they were drawing the cards and maybe say a little bit about that. Well, tarot is not my bailiwick. You guys are way better at that. Okay, so that's the. That's I just the I just drew the devil card for people who can't see this who are listening. I happen to have just drawn the devil as he was talking about that. Uh, I'll just quickly intercede by saying that for me, uh, the devil is unseen problems or lower base urges that keep you from achieving a higher will or even things that trip you up like a snake in the leaves in the woods that could jump up and snap at you from out of nowhere. But uh, as he said, the, as he was saying, it's not his forte. I happen to draw the devil card. So, so l let me get this straight. So they, the archetypes or whatever that are representing themselves through the tarot to these people as like functioning in their reality at that moment, They've got a hierophant and a devil. And the five of cups. It's a pip card. Okay. Interesting. It's, it's kind of a card. Uh, 
if you if you'd like, we could uh, we could move on to Jake for this and kind of uh, just. For sure, I'm not going to contribute anything meaningful other than to say that when you engage in any sort of magical operation like that, you invoke something, and I'm just going to go ahead and call it the trickster again because that's what it is. You don't know what you're tapping into, like the the tarot's a phone. The, all these things are phones. Like. You don't know who's on the other end. You don't know how sophisticated they are, whether they've got a voice scrambler or whether they know what your mom's voice sounds like. You don't know. You just don't know. It's the, it's the Matrix, Neo. No, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I definitely appreciate your point. Um, and I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I can definitely see why you, um, you like Giza Death Star, which is actually one of the first places that we met each other from. I think the doc would have um, a great agreement with you on that one. And for people, for people who don't know who I'm talking about, because I hope we get some hellier listeners who might not be familiar with our cozy little crazy corner of the conspiraverse or occultiverse or SO-verse, uh, Dr. Farrell is Dr. Joseph Farrell, and he runs Giza Death Star, and that's the shout-out I'll give for him. But uh, yeah, so basically, let's, uh, let's see what Jake, what you made of that scene, because I know you have some familiarity with the tarot, so... Uh, you know, give us what you got. Oh, yeah. I'm very familiar with Tarot. <laughs> been doing it for almost 25 years now. So, oh, yeah. No thing or two. But, uh, and this is pretty interesting because just yesterday I was watching, just last night, I was watching this video that was going through the Tarot Tableau. And, uh, and they were talking about the devil card for, and it, and about how the devil is the trickster. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> of course. Like, the way I would read that, and of course, I have to say this, she, when she's reading the cards, she's really right up there in it. So to me, it's harder for me to read in that sort of situation for myself. You know, I'd have, I have to read for other people and I can get them super accurate. With me, I got too much skin in the game, so it's hard for me to say, I'll try to twist it to what I want it to be. Right. And, or, oh no, it's saying this. This is what I was worried about, but it made me not really saying that, you know? Like, don't foretell your own destiny. Rule yep. number one of divinity. If it doesn't do either one of those, it's just like the message gets completely lost. You know what I mean? Sure. But I would say like, he pretty much hit it with like, like the Hierophant was them, right? Because they're coming there like they're the the experts in the in the in the ghost hunters, or whatever you know. And uh, paranormal investigator. Right, <laughs> and. It, it was a perfect dream for the whole series there, or at least the, the first season there, because it like they're coming in as the, the hero font, the experts in the thing. And they're dealing with the trickster. And it's like at the time they're looking for some smoking gun evidence, you know, some footprints or pictures of the little green men or whatever, the goblins, you know. And of course they didn't get that, so that's the that's where the five of cups come in, is that they're like, oh, crying because they lost the. But then, it was all the synchronicities and everything that happened with it. Those are the other cups they weren't even paying attention to. 
that's a fascinating i think you did a great job with that of course the third card in the te- on the read there would be the devil so it's almost as if like they're only focusing on the roadblocks like you're saying mm-hmm. and that that's kind of the attitude that uh you know that first night when they were staying in the motel room i think the attitude really shifted by the time they got to the cabin but in that motel room they were they seemed very sad and somber yeah i would agree with that um now let's see, uh, because the tarot was used a little bit later on in the show, but uh, we'll stick. We'll try to keep in order as we're going. I thought uh, one thing that we might want to jump back around to and mention is how they had a bunch of pictures. Since we're talking about cards with pictures, they did have those pictures of the aliens and the footprints. We have uh, we haven't really dug into those, and so uh, I want to talk briefly about what you guys make of the photographic evidence that was enough to compel them to go down to Hellier to investigate. Uh, all those different times. Uh, what we saw was both a few footprints uh, that were not emu prints, like he was talking on Facebook. Uh, he said, is anyone an expert in footprints? And I saw that um, John Tenney had uh, responded to that. So he said he would send him the pictures. I had a synchronicity last night when I was rewatching, by the way. I was down at a meeting uh, going to see a degree, and someone mentioned uh, how we were talking about the different ways that geniuses thought. And he was talking about Leonardo and Michelangelo. And I made a quick joke talking about, oh, and the rest of the Ninja Turtles. And <laughs> when uh, you looked on the uh, Facebook thread that he puts on the first episode, I believe it is, uh, he mentions it kind of looked like a Ninja Turtle footprint. So there was more sinks. Oh, wow. Interesting. And, and so I guess uh, I want to talk briefly about the evidence that got them down there before we continue back forward into the third, fourth, and fifth episodes. Uh, so what did you guys make of the uh, the so-called, and I'm using scare quotes here, uh, the evidence that they got, which was mainly three-toed footprints with alleged dermal ridges and then some very um, almost Bigfootian uh, level of blurry photos of what kind of could have been gray aliens, like the in profile and whatnot. Uh, Taylor, what did you think about that evidence? How did that strike you? Sure. So first off, the uh, the footprints I was super impressed with. I think they definitely could have been faked very easily. Even the dermal ridges probably could have been faked pretty easily, but they look so genuine. And and there were several different footprints, and they all kind of had the same vibe to them, right? Um, that was fascinating. And and really, when they came around, so this is one of the things about David Christie that boggles my mind because. During this, you know, sort of introduction to it, he's having a back and forth conversation. He being Greg is having a back and forth conversation with with David Christie, and he says, "Oh, well, you know, we're interested, but we're going to need more evidence." And and so he sends him uh, more pictures of these footprints with a ruler. He specifically called out, "Like, I need something to show the size." So so that makes me think there is somebody that's actively doing this. It's not just some stock of images they have somewhere, but. The images of the creature, or I should, I, I should really say the really dark images with strange blurry light patches in them uh, didn't sell me quite as much, but I brought up this whole story to a close friend of mine who's very, very skeptical and I would say is more of a materialist than anything else. And he actually kind of blew my mind. He said, well, you know, if you're going to have a picture of, of something like that, you're going to take it at night when they're coming out and you're going to, you know, you're going to take it quickly because you're probably going to be scared. So, so, you know, you don't have time to set up the aperture and set up the tripod and make sure you get a good photo. So that, that was compelling. 
Very good. Uh, great. Yeah. And uh, Marshall, why don't you uh, go piggyback on that? What do you think? Well, I, I did not find the evidence compelling, uh, really, really in the slightest at all. Um, there was no face on Mars. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the face on Mars itself is, is, is nice, I guess, but. <laughs> but the question is, is there life on Mars? No, okay. Currently, I don't know. Was so there? What, what I was just quoting Bowie. What didn't you find compelling about the about like the footprints or the uh, the other photos? Just out of curiosity. Why did I not find it compelling? Right. Oh, um, well, as to the photographs, um, for the reasons you've ex- you've just said, because it's going to be impossible you know, in the moment to get a good photo of one of these things. Like if you're not setting the camera up to catch them, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to get it. Like, just like you said, you're going to be scared out of your mind for Mm -hmm. anyone that's even, you know, come close to a a UFO or something that you didn't know was going to be there. Like it's so utterly shocking to you that you you don't have time to think about any of this stuff. It reorients your world immediately. So like you're not thinking in terms of phones and cameras, in the first, you know, second or two after this thing happens to you. And by then it's gone. Uh, right. So then, you know, you're not going to get a good photo of it. So photographic evidence, I really have a, I have a hard time with photographic evidence in general. Yeah. Uh, this is something that's static that you can take a picture of that's just sitting there, right? That's a uh, good point. What about um, the footprints? Because those, those were pretty static. Go ahead. So I, I'm not an expert in footprints. And so anything that I see is a, that's a footprint, I'm just going to be like, well, I have no ability to analyze this. I'm just going to put it in the fake pile. That's um, a fair point. Yeah, um, and that, and that, that's just for me because from where I'm coming from, it seems like the footprint would be the easiest thing to fake out of all of it. Yeah, and I if, hear you. And enable, to get someone to prove that the footprint is real, uh, in the way that you would need to actually prove a footprint as a genuine piece of evidence, you would need an expert to like go through and do it. And, you know, I, I, they were talking about dermal ridges, but until you get a guy who's qualified in a system that evaluates this sort of thing and he evaluates it according to that, you know, tried and true system under which people go to jail, you know? So if you're dealing with a guy, who has that kind of standards and he's like oh yeah this is genuine then i'm like okay well there's a three-toed thing running around here you know but until that moment comes which i didn't really see happen in the series um i don't know so basically you're not buying the evidence it's not necessarily concrete enough for you uh, well it could be for somebody who's qualified to evaluate this sort of thing and maybe but, somebody did that but yeah. you're not buying it right now is what you're saying until you yeah. see further proof uh, yeah. i just want to Add to what you said about uh, that life-shocking, changing emotional event. Um, they do talk about a man named uh, Woodrow Dornberger, who on November 3rd, 1966, was run was off the road. Dornberger? Uh, I was, you know what? I, you should, yeah, I know, right? Because I was thinking of Walter. You know exactly where yeah, I went with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, his name's Dornberger. I, I took copious notes, and my writing is just scrawling right now. But that's <laughs> uh, so I, I, that, but any good Giza Death Star member or fan of Walter Bosley would appreciate, or someone named Nimza would appreciate what I just did there. <laughs> so um, I will say that he was run off the road by a UFO. And uh, Jake, we're about to get to you. I'll just say that um, he was pretty terrified, like you were saying. It, it, these guys can be uh, pretty life-altering, and um, you know, this is not your average bear. 
And what happened was this guy said, do not be afraid. Uh, and he gave him his name. And this was the uh, famous Indrid Cold. So I think uh, that's uh, worth just putting in there since this would be something like this guy was David Christie, allegedly, quote unquote, friend of Terry Wrist, um, quote unquote. This guy was like, you know, he was pretty freaked out. And he said, uh, you know, his from the horse's own mouth, he said, you know, I couldn't think clearly enough except to react with anger or with certain emotional responses. So, yeah, there, there's definitely something to be you know, kept in mind when we're dealing with this, because I like to think that like, it's all cool to meet an alien, but you know, I have to question how, how calm or what would my emotional state go to? Would I have this happen? Do you want to say something, Marshall? One last thing about what you just said before we kick it over to Jake. Um, yeah. So if some event like this happens to you, like if it's a UFO or if it's some cryptid or if it's some, you know, it, if you see one of these things, it is so outside of your normal experience that your nervous system beyond your control um, is going to assume that it's a life or death situation because it's so foreign. And like, that's the kind of reaction that, that seizes you. And it's not panic. It's, it's like lucidity. That's just so focused that nothing else matters in that it's moment. Overstimulation of the neuronal yeah. processes it instantly becomes the most important thing that's going on, like to the exclusion of all the other stuff that could happen. Like for instance, taking a picture. Right. It's a great you know point. I mean? Absolutely. Jake, yeah. um, what do you, what do you make of the, uh, we're going to say quote unquote evidence that they were given from uh, Mr. Christie, Dr. Christie. And uh, you know, um, also I'm just going to piggyback on here since you've been really patient this whole time. Uh, maybe you just want to add a little bit about what you think about this uh, Terry wrist character. Of course, they noted that it's uh, homophonically like terrorist. But uh, so, what do you think of the evidence and Mister uh, Mister Wrist? Oh, I'll start with the evidence, and uh, I'm kind of with Taylor. Where uh, no, I would understand that it would be hard to get a good picture of these things. You know, but I didn't find that the, the blurry picture very compelling. But the footprint, there's something about it that really looked, it could have been faked, but it looked, it didn't they pay a whole lot of attention to detail? And they would have to know that area hmm. because mm -hmm. that actually doesn't come in until later. But they said, well, yeah, that's from the, the coal slurry and there's a lot of that around there and stuff. Right. So the footprint, the footprint and, and yeah, you could see the, the, uh, the dermal lines and stuff and, uh, the dermal bridges and everything. And it, it looked, it looked compelling to me. Well, then again, I'm not a footprint expert. So, well, are you serious? You're not what the, what the hell, man? Uh, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um what about mr wrist ah that's an interesting one and it brings me back to okay so like that brings me back to what we were originally talking about we're like how did they not take this more critically or try to find out more about who this terry wrist is you know um because it's clearly Clearly not their real name, you know? 
Yeah, if I may add, they said that they found it with uh, Greenfield's book. Go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was about to get into was the Greenfield book. So, you know, that's the only mention of this Terry Wrist is in the in the epilogue of that Alan Greenfield. I think it's Alan Greenfield. Yeah. Yep. T. Allen Greenfield. I guess the T Alan stands for Tau. So they made me look into that guy. That guy is an interesting character, let me tell you. <laughs> so real, real quick, I just got to ask, uh, Jake, do you, have you found, you're talking about you, you looked into Alan Greenfield? Yeah. Did you find if he said anything anywhere about Hellier since it's come out? Interesting, because he is thanked I, in the in the credits for the show. And he, he could answer so many questions if he just came <laughs> out and talked about it. He could answer so many questions. Well, let's come around to that. That's a great question, Taylor. Seen anything from him recently at all? Right. Okay. Here's something interesting that I found today. Actually, was uh, him writing something about because he was a uh, uh, some big head guy in the OTO. Are you saying that he was Lamb? <laughs> not, not quite that big, <laughs> but he was like the head of the local lodge or even like the area, you know. He was in the Gnostic Church, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, and he was a big proponent of the Gnostic Church and everything too. And uh, but in 2006, he retired from all that, and it was really interesting. I thought anyway that his reasoning for leaving the OTO was because he felt that the OTO wasn't influencing society enough. Well. <laughs> Can Wait I, a second. You know, go ahead, Marshall, you go, then I'll follow back around because I have actually questions for um, Taylor and Jake coming up on this. So you go, Marshall. That was it. I, I So who is the OTO guy? Can you see Greenfield? The cipher of the UFO nut? The secret the cipher of the Euphonauts. Okay, so the author of Cipher of the Euphonauts was part of the OTO. Yes. And left because he felt they weren't influencing society enough. I hear you, Marshall. I hear you. This guy is his face, you know, his book is now part of a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> I find right. that to be either excellent marketing on the part of <laughs> or someone name dropping him in just the, the cuttiest way possible that would only be apparent to people that, you know, knew the stuff. Well, that's, yeah. that's fantastic because I'm going to take, now I love where you're going with this because this is actually going to come around at least 360 degrees worth of circles. Um, first of all, Jake. Rotation, rotation, my friend. Yo, for sure, the spiral on the up. Jake, would you mind my saying so, sir? Speaking of circles? Go ahead. Uh, so, Jake, you, are, uh, you have taken your Minerval degree in the OTO. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Speaking yeah. of full circles, though. Yep. Um, zero degrees. <laughs> yep. Two circles, um, zero degrees. <laughs> oh, nice. Excellent. Um. Now, Taylor, um, are you familiar with uh, any of the OTO in Minnesota? Oh, very. I haven't, I haven't joined or been to a lodge yet, but I'm, I've, I know several people who attend, yeah. I know that uh, we're not going to mention their names, uh, that, but there are people both in the Giza Death Star chat 
and certain people that we know from our Discord chats mm-hmm. who have um, who actually go to Lodge together. So there's oh, oh, okay. yes, independently, there's a guy and he's a Death Star chat who goes to the same OTO as the individual of whom we speak right now in Minnesota. In Minnesota. Interesting. And and that lodge, it, it's public information. That lodge is called Leaping Laughter, which I think is an amazing name. Oh, definitely. I was thinking about Magic Without Tears yesterday. So, um, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I don't know if there's a connection or not. Um, I mean, I, you know, f- full disclosure, I'm, uh, I'm a 32nd degree Freemason and a zero degree Rosicrucian. I'm, I'm calling it zero. It's the probationary degree I just joined. But it's yeah. like most basicity, basicity. But um, I, you know, I'm I'm definitely putting it out there. I'm interested in OTO, but there, there's this whole grand cosmology laid out in front of me, and I don't know if it's my path or not. But that being said, the reason um, I I've invited this is where we get into like clue right now, gentlemen. I've invited you each here this evening for different reasons. But um, the reason I invited you, Taylor, is because you said something fascinating in the Discord chat, which just I could not ignore, and it was talking about. You mentioned how, would you care to kind of say what you were saying about LARPing and OTO and that um, the, the cipher itself? Could you just run into that a little bit for us, please? Because I think we're sure. getting into something here. Let me pull up what I actually said real quick. Sure. Um, if you want. Was, uh, let's see here. I'll just play the elevator music while we're do, 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 do. Okay. So <laughs> I I guess because you, you quoted me when you when you messaged me about it. So you said, uh, yes, or yes, I should say, I said, Jesus, this hellier uh, NAEQ OTO shit is like some massive ARG, but for real. So what I, I guess what I was getting at there is the kind of uh, integration with the OTO, um, the OTO stuff, uh, Crowley's, you know, Book of the Law, the New Way on English Kabbalah, which is fascinating, by the way. And anyone who has not dabbled with that should uh, check out naeq.io uh, it's a, a calculator that you can use for um comparing values of, of words and stuff i um, definitely but, concur i will say that i concur and I, i've been using that a little bit uh <laughs> today during our conversation to just compare did you, some values, did but, you try hellier by any chance i think i have a couple days ago but i don't remember what the value well, was or anything. we can do that while we're on the call but please continue i don't mean to interrupt sure so i guess what i was thinking in my headspace at the time was um, I had just listened to a podcast where a couple of people were talking about uh, about Hellier in association with the Secret Cipher of the Euphonops book, but they were more talking about the Secret Cipher and more talking about the New Way on English Kabbalah and Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons and all these things that kind of wrapped up together, right? So it, it felt to me, you know, as someone who's sitting here that feels fairly detached from a lot of this stuff, it felt to me like for the first time there was something active, something, some kind of mystery that was going on that was, that was openly inviting people to become a part of it. And I think well, that was, that's the biggest thing that I got from Hellier, especially at the end was, was them saying, you know, hopefully like, what was it? Uh, I think Greg said like, um, this will be shown to lots of people and hopefully yep. it will, it will change pe- the way people think about this stuff. And that really, that really spoke to me, you know, who's going to be the next. So, yeah. Right. So in a ARG, uh, I use that term. It means alternate reality game. And I've seen that throughout my life in things like, um, uh, marketing for video games or music or, or different things where uh, a marketing campaign will create sort of this, this real world game where you play with interactive elements that take place 
usually like if it's in America, they would take place all over the country. Different people would be involved and they would all kind of feel like they're a part of something bigger. But this to me feels like that, except it's not manufactured or at least it feels like it's not manufactured. It feels genuine and authentic. I agree. Um, before I pass the torch over to Marshall, and thank you guys for uh, this. I think this is strictly fascinating, of course. Uh, several thoughts come to mind that I'd just like to bear unto, the, unto, uh, unto our witnessing audience here, that uh, especially with this idea of society not being affected enough and the concept of how UFOs and um, quote-unquote aliens may be higher dimensional or other dimensional entities of course, there is that famous Area 51 call done on 1997's 9-11 to Art Bell with the guy who said that he was an escaped Area 51 member talking about running across the country. And this ties around to how you were mentioning, of course, Crowley and Parsons. I'll add that Jack Parsons uh, did make a poltergeistic appearance at one of the owners of the Enchanted Fox's house. Uh, oh, wow. I happened to buy, um, what is it, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword at the Enchanted Fox. So Hank comes from a place with a Parsons connection. Uh, and of course, um, speaking of three Libras, uh, because the two owners of the store are Libras, I'm a Libra, and we have all this history, uh, Crowley, Parsons, and I would be three Libras as well, just to throw that out there. And I, I also would like to just interject real quick and say- Go ahead. <laughs> this is three, three Libras is also the name of a song by a band called a perfect circle. Who's fronted by a guy named Maynard James Keenan, who's in another band called tool, which put out a song called Feop Dioyad, which is Zenokian for the voice of God. And the song is <laughs> the UFO call from the art bell show. That's, that's correct. That's thank you for, thank you for doing that. That saved me that uh, from having to Sorry. go there. No, do not, do not, no need to apologize. That's actually, uh, isn't that also the, isn't that also the one that has, uh, the, uh, like a phone call recording of like the ingredients for hash. Is that on the same? That's thing? on Anima and Come that on. is called the ear of on Satan. And it's a uh, cookie recipe made to sound like a Nazi. Yeah, yeah, the de devil's eggs. Yeah. Right. The, the, the eggs and eggs or balls of the devil. Right. Yep. Um, <laughs> which is just a hash cookie recipe that, right. uh, so, but um, no, great stuff, guys. Um, I, I, I'll just finish the uh, the concept because I'm writing a book about tools, the holy gift, and of course, the oh, Fiapte sure. Awad is on there, and uh, that's a major piece. That's a huge crux. But I think what just because I could keep going on and on, but of course, I did get the uh, the three levers idea from the Perfect Circle song. Okay. Um, yeah, no, 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 no. Please, that was freaking awesome, dude. Um, what happened was that. Perhaps, and, and I'll have you know that the original uh, Fayap Deawad, because I can speak Enochian, blah, actually had, if you look up on the tool, um, the, the tool navy, whatever board, they have the original idea for this. And this gets extremely deep beyond what I'm going to go into now. But they had actually had these real Enochian calls they were going to do during the song, talking about the lanterns of sorrow and these, oh my gosh. So when, I, when you say this whole um, live action role play, I do feel like perhaps that right now, one thing that this is doing is perhaps summoning the dimensions together somehow, just like the Babylon working as shown in episode eight of Twin Peaks, The Return may have torn holes in the dimensional veils. I feel like we're participating in some very, very, very far, vast reaching 
um, how do you want to say working, if you will? I, I got to ask yeah. real quick, uh, what you say in the return in episode eight of the return? Correct. That they, they made a, a reference or an allusion to the Babylon working that Jack Parsons did? You have to read through the secret history of Twin Peaks and then connect oh, okay. it to what I he's I just watched showing. that episode last night. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Excellent. The one where the atomic bomb goes off, right? That's exactly yeah. correct. Oh, that episode. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. That's the that's the famous one. When I met Gordon White, I actually, uh, I'm pretty sure I quoted that episode to him. I met him in uh, Hollywood in July of 17. But uh, anyways, we're, we're circling around and around uh, <laughs> yeah. as, as we are wont to do. But uh, I guess the point is, is that I also, by the way, just saw today that my copy of the Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts uh, has shipped to me because I bought it last night. So, um, yeah, I, I felt compelled to do so, especially if we're recording a podcast on this. But okay, enough of, as Miguel Connor would say, of Aeon Bite and uh, Heretics Anonymous et al. in the um, Abraxas Brief. Enough of my drivel. Um, Marshall and then Jake, what, uh, what do you guys make of this crazy freaking thing that we're smorgasbording in front of us right now? Marshall, then Jake. Okay, so... I am really uh, liking the idea of an OTO LARP right now. I mean, that now that this has all come out, I mean, this is all news to me. So I, I think this pretty much clarifies the whole thing, right? My, my initial suspicion was, oh, you know, some local boy read this secret cipher, the Euphonauts book, and then kind of used it to name drop and, you know, kind of just low-key get famous and only he'll know, right? You, if you ever, ever met a crazy person, they'll do this kind of thing. But at the same time, you, uh, when you bring in the OTO, um, when you bring in the OTO, you, you get into the, into the realization that the people who are organizing this thing, I mean, the secret site for the euphonauts, whatever that is, that's the magical thing. And they call it a cipher for a reason. Um, it, one way to say it, it's almost like, uh, like a mandala in some way, but it's more like a formation as, as you would find in like Chinese magic or battle tactics. So basically it's like a, it's a complex, uh, self-contained, it's like a complex self-contained little world almost, you know, and then you're going to get somebody to go in and once they go in, then you direct your, uh, their attention around inside of that thing to your ultimate end, whatever Excellent. that means in a battle, you destroy them. Right. But Excellent. in this concept, it's, it's, a, it's a synchronicity. It's a magical working, right? So the point is, you want to draw in as many people as possible, and then you direct their attention in certain ways, you know, and that's accomplishing certain effects, right? I'm sure someone who is more experienced with OTO and their practices, because I'm not, you know, I'm in an exclusive spiritual relationship that I value very much. But, uh, you know, anyone who's had experience with that sort of stuff would, would know more than me the point of something like this. I, I, I can't speak as to what the point of it is, but I can definitely say that if the OTO is involved in this thing, I, I don't know who in, on the crew is an OTO, if anybody, or the production of the series or the dissemination of the series. If you're going to YouTube, well, of course, you know, someone from that ilk is going to be involved in there. So very you know. interesting. Yeah. I, I like what you're saying. I did notice that um, if you look closely, it could just be, um, uh, what's the word when you look too hard for something? Uh, it's all right. I, thank you. You got it. Thank you. Um, but you know, you would see like that being flashed a few times. The cornudo would kind of pop up out of nowhere, and, and this, that, the other thing. Right. So, um, 
one more thing, Marshall, and then we're going to pass it over to Jake. So um, about trying to bridge two worlds together, right? I mean, that that's the kind of the point of the working, right? So it, it's open, exactly. open, open the bridge between the two worlds. And I think that synchronicity plays uh, a really important role in this. And the, the film demonstrates how this, how this works. Um, so when we talk about synchronicity, we say sync, right? I mean, that's kind of our word that we say, oh, sync, 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 right? Yeah. Well, if you think about the other contexts in which this kind of thing occurs, the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, guys who are about to go on a mission syncing up their watches, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you do the synchronicity, um, when it's coming from this trickster source, right? When you're catching the things in this reality, that means you're merging the two ones together, right? It's, you know, it kind of goes back to Twin Peaks. And this is how you engineer a spot where, you know, the lodge opens, right? Yeah, the portal. is in the two worlds. And, you know, the way that you detect that that's happening is a synchronicity. And, and so, it makes me think of a synchrotron as well. Yeah. And so, and so basically, you know, this is a big working by somebody and they've done great at it. You know, I'm not saying anybody in the crew or anything is involved. They may be, I don't know. You know, who, who knows? Right. I, I think we all agree that we're not uh, accusing anyone of yeah, anything. Absolutely here. not. Yeah. Whoever, right. you know, the secret cipher of the euphonauts guys, like that. That's <laughs> that's who I want to look at. Well, here. let's let's actually because Jake's been. Um. I first of all, I want to profoundly thank you. Uh, well, first of all, each of you because I, I it's a synchronicity that we have such an a uh, uh, astounding array of different view vantage points because you know in a way we're performing our own working by providing these angles of uh, light on this subject, so to speak, kind of um, offering a different spin, you know, kind of uh, adding our own resonances into the overtones that have already come at us, uh, if you will. But um, Jake, when you hear about T. Allen Greenfield, and you mentioned how he didn't feel like he was influencing the culture enough, and now we have a book that's about using ciphers and rituals to contact interdimensional entities We've talked about, as Taylor brought up, the whole concept of Fayette de Awad, or the voice of God, the calling of God. Uh, we're just making this up as we go along. Where do you want to go with this? Because it's your turn to rap for a few here. What do you think, brother? So, uh, the first thing that, that it comes to mind is, because uh, you would mentioned LARPs, when it comes to UFO LARPs, the OTO and specifically because there's a, uh, a subset within it that most intensely focuses on the Enochian material. And that, that's the UFO LARPers like no tomorrow. You know what I mean? And it is like uh, Marshall said, where the point of it is to, to mesh the two, dimensions or universe or whatever, however you want to say it, but you know, the two realms, I'll, I'll say that. I like that word. Crossover. Can you repeat what you just said? We just got a, a skip in the audio. Okay. Well, I was saying, <laughs> start talking this. about Anarchian, and yeah. we get, the, uh, <laughs> we get the, the skip. The, tech, <laughs> the, the techno gremlins there. Yeah. So you oh, said yeah. meshing the two together. And then, which that would be the point of all this is to to um, get it in people's 
you know, because we're all co-creating our, this physical reality anyway. Yes. So you do things, and it, it, people start thinking, okay, like now most people in in the world, or at least in America, believe in UFOs. It's like something like sixty-five percent, at least, say they believe in in aliens from outer space. Well, that means the LARP's working because. <laughs> And it's ninety percent from from these OTO specifically. I forget that. I, I don't want to say it wrong, so I'll just say I don't remember the name of the specific subset within it. But uh, specifically, the 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 branch dealing with the Anakian is uh, and you're talking about. So it's the secret cipher. Well. The first person I think of when I think of secret ciphers is John D. So that's bringing it back. Yeah, that's bringing it back to the UFO. And the way they uh, presented the book in there, because it it seemed like they weren't trying to focus on it, but still like, oh, look at this. You know what I mean? Well, the second second show was titled after that. It pretends like it's not watching the mouse, you know what I mean? You know, it's about the strike kind of thing. Was kind yes. Is how I felt they were, it was with the book there. Well, the, sec- the second episode is called Ink in Black, which comes from that book, doesn't it? Uh, it actually, it, it, comes from, it comes from Lieber All, but yes. Well, Lieber All as quoted in the book, right? Yeah, so, so what Greenfield does, and sorry, Jake, I don't want to step on your toes here, but real quick, what, what Greenfield does in the book is explain that ink and black is equivalent to 112, which is equivalent to the name Injured Cold. Who was a black man, allegedly. Allegedly. And when you look up the song Peaches and Cream by the band 112. Oh? Oh. I'm going to have to do that while we're done. <laughs> I'm just I'm just dropping that one. I'm just I'm I'm gonna put that one and back back into my back into the mists again. But there's a band called One Twelve that I found that was fascinating. That suddenly you know, I mean I believe that they're uh, they are African American individuals who are in that band. Yep. And now Indrid Cold is a black man. These are black men. Their name of their band is One Twelve, and that's Ink and Black. They're writing songs. I don't know. You could make the rest up yourself. But peaches and cream is obviously a sex allegory, and we're talking about sex magic. So, and so they they described him as a Nordic alien, but a black one. So it's the union of opposites right there. Anyway, nicely done. Magic or alchemy or whatever. You already got the black and white uh, within it right there, right away. You know, Marshall, are you still with us? Yeah. So there you go. Um, Because I think uh, we were talking and I mentioned how Saturn is the furthest out and the moon might be the furthest in, and that would be black and white. So I'm thinking that there's another union of opposites there as well, talking about spatial and temporal topographies, if you will. What are you making of what we're saying right here? And then we'll pass it back over to Taylor again. What what as far as like what the... uh the correspondence of white and black. I mean, I, I, 
the whole thing really the the what we've been talking about for the past so and so this being some kind of giant working i i think i i said that before i i'm convinced you know and when you're involved with the oto especially when they're calling it a cipher i mean they they place the word cipher all around this thing and that's what really caught me in the very beginning was like oh cipher that's what this thing is and um yeah I think it's, it is, it's someone's OTO LARP, it's someone's working, you know, it's all the yeah, principle of the socio-psychic engine, I think it's what I call it, you know, it's ways to direct the intention of groups of people, because, you know, when you're t- implicating uh, directed intention, especially network directed intention, that's talking about the work of Dr. Tiller and the Tiller effect, which is, you know, we're, we're talking about affecting outcomes in reality with directed human intention. And so when you're doing things like this that are workings, right, in, in the public eye that are networking these big groups of people and getting them to do things, I think that that's really the central point of this whole thing, right? Yeah, I do recall you saying that before. I just wasn't sure if you had anything else to say about the different details that had been added. But I think one of the most important takeaways from what you had said before was the synchronicities almost showing that someone's been locked into that, as you put it, mandala. Yeah. Well, that's, that's how you, that's how you tell. And the thing, the thing with the synchronicity is that it's relevant to the individual. And so that when it's occurring to multiple groups of people, what you have is the actual sync up, of individual realities, which there's hardly another way to determine that that's happening. You know what I mean? Excellent. So so the the fact that a synchronicity is happening to a group of people is kind of demonstrative that all of these subjective realities are converging. And that's, I think, the evidence of the, you know, networked directed intention. And so when you have other people that are going to join in on this synchronicity thing, they're joining that club, right? But the thing is, someone at some point started the, you know, the initial, uh, the initial working, right? The thing that's spinning out all of this other synchronicity, right? The zero point. Right, exactly. So whoever that is, has the, you know, tap to this thing, has the, the out valve for all of everyone's energy. And so we ultimately don't know who that is. And so people got to understand when you're participating in these things, if this is somebody's OTO LARP, you know, that's equivalent to the mainstream media. Would you be implying that the OTO is then working for whoever started that zero point? Yeah, well, that's what I think. I mean, if we're we're talking about this thing, all goes back to the secret site for the euphonauts, and this guy was a big OTO guy. Well, I'm going to add on to that because I think that especially uh, Jake is going to appreciate what I'm about to say, but I... I know that we can always get into the details later and I can show notes that show notes the hell out of this or even get Tracy on here sometime. But uh, Tracy believes Tracy Twyman for people who don't know what I mean. Tracy Twyman happens to believe that we're living in a universe created by John D. And if we're talking about John D's alphabet of the angels here being utilized in this cipher and I I'm just full off the Dr. F branch of speculation. I'm just jumping way off the high octane branch there. But an idea that comes to mind is that if someone is creating that zero point energy, John D seems like a decent candidate. Just now that we're just getting the hellier out of hellier, I'm thinking that maybe John D is the guy 
that we could talk about just from that idea. And then we'll circle back around to the show again, maybe. But um, Jake, do you, do you want to say something to that before we pass it to Taylor and Marshall? Yeah, yeah, I'll touch on that because uh, a lot of ways I totally agree with Tracy on that. Although with a caveat, because knowing, having read these work and everything and knowing as much as I do about that guy, he, uh, I think he was probably, yeah, the universe that we live in currently was pretty much, at least the mental universe and the way the world is, is, is pretty much the creator. John D was the one who initiated that in. But if you read his work, he wasn't doing it. He wasn't the one in control. He was just following orders. <laughs> right, right. So, and then, when you look at, so, okay, John D was the first one to contact these Anakians, right? And, uh, or D and Kelly, anyway. And then, the first person, at least, to write about it, and that we know of, to uh, go through all the Anakian ethers was Crawley, and that was a large part of the OTO and all that. So we're really uh, getting in there with that. We've we've definitely gone from talking about a popular internet TV show into conspiracy (laughs) theories that only conspiracy theorists could conspiracy theorize about. I mean, like some fractal of a fractal. Um, But it had to be us too, because it has to be where the conspiracy and the occult overlap. Right. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) I mean, we've we really do have a bit of a like a Harlem Globetrotters dream team here. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Taylor, maybe go ahead, Taylor. Why don't you jump yeah. in? So I, I'm, I hadn't considered D. That, that's that's a really interesting idea because so much of what Crowley did was based on a lot of that Enochian stuff. I just never thought about that. I was thinking you know, when you're talking about a zero point kind of a thing, Crowley and, and you know. Um, the receiving of the book of the law really was, was seeming to be uh, at entryway, at least to me. But now that you mentioned that, you know, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if there was something before D even, because, you know, these, these things change. They're not always, you know, like uh, D's Enochian, Kelly's Enochian, it's not the same as what Crowley perceived them to be, is not the same as what I perceive them to be or what, you know, Danny Carey from Tool perceives them to be, right? Everybody has sort of a different perception. And when you've got hundreds of years in between, those, those forms change, right? So I'm wondering how far it goes back now. I love this. D, yeah. D is only Elizabethan, so that's, what, that's 1600s? 1600s, yeah. yeah. So... You know, I mean, the Greeks, the Egyptians, obviously, a lot of that, that stuff way predates a lot of that stuff. But, you know, if we're talking about a single type of working or the joining of, you know, the u- unifying of opposites. Oh, there you go. It's holding up uh, the sacred magic of ancient Egypt. Thank <laughs> By, you. Thank uh, you. Rosemary Clark. Uh, Rosemary Clark. Nice. Uh, if we're talking about, you know, unifying opposites, that alchemical idea has been around since, you know, well, well since at least Egypt and, uh, and, and Greece and probably Tibet and, you know, China and India, like you talked about earlier. Things down. We have written records of it. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's just, it's just well, innate. And, they're and they're, that's, they're you know, in the Vatican, not in me, but up, up. <laughs> 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 
Okay, anyway. <laughs> Mar- I think Marshall just tried to... Okay, anyways. Uh, so please continue, Taylor. <laughs> little, little humor for the... <laughs> okay, anyways, please continue. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just thinking like, you know, uh, unifying material world with the spiritual world is going... Or, or as you said earlier, which I really like, re-haunting the world. That's, that's going to be a big project that's going to take probably hundreds of years. And it's going to be probably a pendulous sort of swinging back and forth between ideologies of belief and non-belief. And when you look at, you know, uh, what Crowley ushered into the world, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I blame the 60s largely on Aleister Crowley, but that kind of counterculture and sort of um, element of change has, it was like so drastic and new. And, and that's around the time we had you know, these, these things going on with like Parsons and Hubbard and all, all this extra stuff in the kind of mid 1900s. And now, you know, since then we sort of swung back to a more uh, materialist kind of um, perspective. And nowadays, now these past few years, it seems like things are shifting again. Well, I I would think that the, um, let let me say this quick and then I'll throw it over to you. I'd say the materialist paradigm has been around for a long time oh, uh, sure. since the 1800s. And that, you know, um, one person who is very good at talking about this and you don't have to agree with everything, but um, I think he has, he adds a huge contribution for our zeitgeist. And the one who I, um, I can probably say I got rehaunting from would be Gordon White. Oh, um, yep, for sure. He talks about it uh, from that angle and he talks about, you know, the absolute, bastardization of thinking in reality that materialism is and uh you know i would say that um that's worth noting while we're talking about that but i i don't know who i was uh who was just starting to say was that jake or uh marshall who was starting to say something there jake was saying something oh uh, yeah yeah because i was saying and uh but i was saying yes yeah, the materialism with aliens now <laughs> right yeah. there you go but uh and uh I forgot. I was going to say something about yeah, going back to D. I forget how I was getting there. So. Do the thing where you don't think about it, and let me throw it over to Marshall. Um, we're going to start talking about the show again while we let you do the thing where you don't think about it. Marshall. Yeah, we can circle back to John D. and Aleister Crowley later. Cause the, the, the 007, right? Yeah, we can, we can talk about that. You know that's where that comes from, right? right? You yeah. know that you know that 007 is the um the two eyes with the hand looking over it. Mm-hmm. So like basically where we are in the show right now is they're actually at the cabin. They've um I, I noticed how there was those little pumpkins everywhere in the show too that matched their um what do you call it their their studio. If you notice that there was pumpkins on the uh, porch of the cabin that they were staying at. But mm-hmm. that's where they went to, and I believe it was Pikeville, Kentucky, maybe. Yep. And uh, we know that Lauren Coleman, uh, Crypto Lauren, talks a lot about different names of meaning, and Pike is one of them. And uh, we can all probably be thinking of the same man right now when we say Pike. But um, why don't you dig into the third episode a little bit for us? Uh, do, you, do you remember what was happening in the third episode? No, I stopped differentiating them after a while. I just put the playlist on YouTube and just watched the whole thing like it was a big movie. Exactly. Well, it was called Trapped in a Maze, which is actually going back to almost what you were saying about us finding ourselves in a particular corridor of synchronicities. Yeah. And um, so this was the one where they were 
uh, trying to talk to, I believe, Joey at the gas station, and they started uh, talking to him, and this yeah. is where they... So now, am I jogging your memory? Do you want to go from there? Yeah, well, so when all of this stuff is happening, this is just, this is just the intervening trail of, you know, synchronicity, right? So at this point, to me in the story kind of feels like, well, at the Lord of the Rings, we've been walking for a long time. We're still still walking to Mount Doom, you know. Um, I, it, it seems more exciting when you're when you're in it, um, <clears throat> but at the same time, it's like I get skeptical of a lot of the first person stories, especially at a point in a narrative where they're tr- where they're like really having a vested interest in trying to keep it going. I'm not saying that they did that on purpose, but I, I'm saying that the things would. You know, I, I can't, I just, I, sometimes I can't trust the people on the ground, not, not the producers of the show necessarily, but the people who are giving them information. And so I think at this point in the story, interesting. Was, at this point in the story, it was like, well, I, I didn't, I wasn't super jazzed on it when it was happening. And now looking at this thing in the lens of an OTO LARP, Thank you, Taylor. Instantly. Everything becomes suspect, right? Because when you talk about UFO LARP extraordinaires, like I, I think people who, who don't know the lengths that secret society people go to for their beliefs, like you know what I mean? I, I right. People will people do people do this kind of thing. I mean, yes, this, it ha- it happens. Like it, people should realize that you're being LARPed all the time by people with motives that you can scarcely understand. Like that, that's the, that's the key here. Even the media. I mean, the, per, the more mundane expression of that you could say is from NPR over here, Fox news here. Right. I mean, there's another example of it, even to commercials. They're trying to yeah. LARP you into wanting something. Yeah. And, and also to clarify, I'm not saying that anyone who does this does it because they're a bad person. If they undertake it from the vantage point of a secret society, because if you look at any secret society or any magical tradition, you understand that, um, especially anything initiatic or esoteric, especially initiatic, because that's the real, nothing gets done unless it's initiatic, really. Like anyone who's in knows, it, unless you're, you know, right. there's an initiation going on, you're not getting anything. Um, so when you deal with that, right. the, the, real, um, the, the real currency there is, uh, called samaya or like um, a, a promise, right? You keeping your word. And so if you believe these things and you're like undertaking them in this good goal, because that's actually what's going on. And it's like in furtherance of something like that's the ultimate spiritual sacrament in some way. So like, I, I would never fault someone for doing this. Like if they're a part of it, cause I understand how this stuff works, you know, it, to initiate is to begin, of course, which I learned uh, through Jake sharing Paul Clark with me. Paul Clark was on uh, an episode of A Cult of Personality. Now we're just like hyper sigiling everywhere. We're just like dropping in little um, glyph. Hey, man, that's what this show is about. That, that's what this show is about. Like, we're talking about the OTO. Like, we accomplished the goal of the show. <laughs> I, I, feel like, I feel like I should go join the OTO after this. yes you just i was like and i was gonna say at some point and after the show all four of us are gonna go out and well well he'll get jake will get his first degree but the four of us will go out and join the oto just to just there you go 
Um, I, I, for some reason, I really don't think that's Marshall's bag, though. I, I, I can't see that's that happening. A, I, have an, I have an exclusive relationship, but I, I you mentioned from the outside, I'm you know well read on that sort of thing. Uh, and we can talk about that another time. But um, first of all, let's check in, Jake. Have we uh, have we remembered what we were going to say? I did because we were talking about the materialism, and I said, "Oh, that goes back to D 2 So because he was one of the first scientists. You know, even before we started working with the spirits in mathematics and one of the first scientists, and he was one of the big inspirations of like uh, uh, Sir Isaac Newton and uh, these other people that uh, really ushered in that materialism. So mm-hmm. he's behind it all on the spiritual side and the material side. Like, as above, so below. Yep. Um, that's a great insight because I didn't even think about how he was also a scientist, but that's really, well, you know, and I mean, Edward Kelly, of course, speaking of, uh, Marshall's trickster, <laughs> that freaking guy, what a, what a champion. I'm just saying, but, um, one thing that did happen in the third, uh, just to wrangle us back in and I'm sure we can spiral out again, but in the third episode, they did that whole scene where they used the technique of the spirit radio or what they would call a spirit radio, and they had those interesting sinks. And if this was manufactured, okay. If it wasn't, even better. But I think one of the most amazing things that I found of this was when they had that 48 minutes. Oh you guys all the- yes. Yeah. So um, I feel like uh, maybe, Taylor, do you want to explain what happened with the 48 minutes thing and how that was more of a kind of a prescient omniscience rather than just a random fart in the wind? Do you want to kind of... I do. I also really want to talk about the tin can. But well, let's, we let's can put there. a pin on that. Yes. Right. So, yeah. so the 48 minutes, and do you want to also talk about the hour or just, just the 48 minutes for now? Oh, no. I mean, so basically you chalked up all three of the really big ones there. Fair enough. So let's, so with, let's do the 48 minutes. Right. So with the 48 minutes thing, um, that that's one of the phrases that was caught on the spirit box that Connor spoke out loud. Um, and just to, to let people know, I guess, if they haven't seen the show, what they did was uh, Connor, one of the one of the investigators, put on some headphones uh, that would pump in the spirit box audio and he put on a blindfold. So he wasn't really participating except for automatically. Um, so then he says 48 minutes at some point during their session and everyone goes, wow, we should check the recording and, and see if it was 48 minutes or something, right? Everyone has this idea that that's going to be some kind of premonition. I'm guessing they checked the recording and it wasn't anything special. It was probably like 37 minutes or something, right? Because they didn't make a comment of it afterwards until Tyler Strand called or uh, they called him. And then they're having this conversation with him and it sounds like he's doing most of the talking and kind of, you know, um, giving them this sort of like extra layer of synchronicity and they're, they're holding back what they're experiencing because it's so weird. And then he hangs up at 48 minutes and 48 seconds. How crazy is that? That's insane. (laughs) You can't make that kind of stuff up, but I mean like, that's pretty crazy. To use an example, Jake and I, we had a series of phone calls. Jake, it's okay to mention this? Sure. Cool. Um, one of them was like 24 minutes, the second one was 23 minutes, and the third one was 22 minutes. It's like one after another. So this kind of stuff just happens. Oh, um, we both have a connection with 22, too. So it was like, Yeah, uh, that's as much as, yeah. Down. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and we did start this. Uh, I'll add this. Marshall Taylor, Jake, and I uh, began this conversation at eight thirty-five, which is eight and eight, which is four members each equaling twenty-two. That's why you wanted to start exactly at eight thirty-five. Makes uh, sense now. Actually, uh, that was an ex post facto thing. I'm just obsessed with Mars, Mars hour. And, you know, frankly, I just kind of let myself be guided by higher intuition. And it's gotten me out of trouble so far. I, uh, I went to step into traffic in Boston on the way to Berkeley College of Music. And literally, something felt like it spun my head around. Right where I was was a freaking gigantic panel van that flew right by Ooh. me. Ooh. And it was not exactly, you know, you know, something that would not have splattered my ass all over the concrete, so to speak. Right. So, you know, I, I'm lucky and I trust in these things. I'll add quickly, speaking of Minnesota, there was a bridge disaster there that was 35W. Uh, two, 35W in 2007. My uncle was seven cars away, just like the Mothman prophecy with the bridge. My uncle was seven cars away, like within like crumbly... Pink Floyd quote here, crumbling land uh, distance. My father was the set of flights after the 9-11 flights. So that's these ones that went out. And then my dad, it was on the next docket or whatever, mm -hmm. itinerary. And my family lost the tickets to the Titanic. So as I think I told Marshall the other night, if you're ever in a disaster, it's not bad to be next to me. Just throwing that one out there. Um uh, Go ahead. I, was actually, I was actually on that bridge the day it collapsed about, uh, I think it was a half an hour to an hour before it collapsed. And also Damn. I was driving home on that bridge, on that specific part of that bridge uh, today, before, right before this, uh, right here. Our paths are crossed in the strangest of ways. Yeah, it collapsed over the uh, Mississippi River, which run through, runs through uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul here. I feel like there's some kind of Mississippi sink. So, but let's um let's move forward. So, um, can I interject one thing about the synchronicity with the forty-eight forty-eight? I was about to ask you about that. So please do, Marshall. Freaking a. Go ahead, man. Um. So, I find it interesting that the forty-eight forty-eight number occurs as a phone call, right? Mm -hmm. That's the yeah. the time of the phone call. Yeah. Right. So by the time that's over, you know, it's 48, 48. Um, the original number came from essentially the other world. Right. That's what that's what the, the right. assertion is basically. Right. And so right. The, the first one comes from the other world. So this is the ultimate sync or lining up. Right. Of the two worlds. But at the, I, I would also add that there's another layer there because it occurs in the context of a phone call, which is also uniting two separate spaces and therefore two separate times also together on this thing. So what they're doing by this one synchronicity is they're taking the spirit world and they're connecting it with one locality in space and time where there is multiple people to another locality in space and time. And it's, that's, you know, three different space time localities. It's Actually, very important to bring that up. Yeah, and so if you come at this from the angle, which someone here certainly d believes that this is the magical working, you know, someone in involved in the genesis of this thing, yep. the effect of sinking very clearly, you know, for everyone to see the spirit, the spirit world and two separate localities in space and time, I think that's a big thing. 
can I just add, or that is to say, the original impetus behind the song, written in Inoki and on the Tool album, Fiep De Awad, you know, I'm sure the people who can speak it are cringing, just like hearing bad French at a restaurant. <laughs> I, uh, I would say that one of the main artifacts in that song was a malfunctioning transistor, and it's basically referred to as a, highly, a more highly evolved machine. And we're talking about the intersection of spirits, of dimensions, of technology, and of human consciousness. All of these things are tied together. And we're experiencing it right now as we speak, affect one another's consciousness, experience the strange overlapping synchronicities. But I guess uh, the question right now before we move on to the fourth, speaking of fourth episode, who is really in charge and are these people really in charge, or are they just lower-level pawns to a higher-order mathematics that they can't even understand? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great. Oh, I want to like mention this. Uh, am I frozen? No, bro, you can, you're good. For a second, but if you were talking about how you almost got hit by the car crossing the street in Boston one time, I was in Cambridge actually right at Harvard Square across the Mass Ave right there. And I was tired of waiting for the light. It didn't seem like any cars or anything were coming. Oh, Jesus. Across. And the general overnight delivery truck came speeding, missed me by inches, but it says G-O-D, real big. <laughs> <laughs> oh, got ran down by God. <laughs> <laughs> that's freaking great man that's that uh, that's that's my temporal lobe are tingling that's funny Marshall, <laughs> have you had any crazy uh so taylor's on the bridge uh god almost smote our friend jake what about what about you anything like that i've dodged so many bullets my friend that i was born in sandy hook but i wasn't there when it happened right on <laughs> Yeah, and uh, there's, there's, there's other stuff. One, I guess if we're trading death stories, you know, one time I was driving with a, a buddy of mine up in Washington or, or up in Oregon on one of these back trails up to a party, and we're, it's like a gravel road, you know, but kind of big, chunky rocks because it's, it's just a logging trail. You know, there's nothing up here. It's just a logging road, and we're whipping around this switchback on the inside of this cliff face and uh he he like fishtail like it, it slides the back out of it and when the wheels catch were pointed out across the you know out <laughs> the direction off of the cliff and we get there uh, yeah we like shoot off the edge and he stops the car r right as the front wheels are hanging off and then we have to like climb out the back and you know luckily there was a, a heavier set lady in the back and so i think she if she helped in that case uh, <laughs> so, uh, we all got out and, and pulled it pulled it back and luckily there were a couple of you know trees and little saplings and stuff lining the, that edge of the road so that, like provide a little more resistance but uh yeah i, I looked down the face of death at that point and that was kind of nice because i was up there on a allegedly spiritual venture so that's a picture perfect kind of death, uh, close call, de uh, near death experience. Oh, yeah, it was terrifying. 
Um, yeah. Jesus. Well, first of all, to all four of us, I'm glad we're all okay. But hands down. <laughs> Secondly, um, I want to bring up something that uh, we're just going to jump forward. We're going to hit the fourth and fifth episodes here. Did anyone notice at the very end of the show, the first season, what picture was in the center of the wall? Bonus pretzel for whoever gets this one. Uh, All right. In, where at? Like, in hell you're at the very last when they're, you know, when a famous conspiracy theory meme and then it has like that guy, uh, Charlie or whatever his name is from it's always sunny in Philadelphia. And he's like showing oh, sure. all the lines connected. <laughs> They oh had, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, so you want to get the bonus pretzel? Who well, was it? talking? Oh, oh. So I mean, I saw lamb. That was the that's, that was the big thing that stuck out to me. That's right. Bonus pretzel goes to Taylor tonight. <laughs> yeah. That was that was uh, okay. So I mean, to come back around to what we've been saying, you know, I mean, lamb. Should we explain? Should we explain what lamb is? Uh, I'm a, okay. If if Jake and Taylor, are, uh, sorry, if Jake and Marshall are okay with the Taylor, rock and roll. Yeah, go for it. Let's rock. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, just real briefly, Lamb is supposedly a self-portrait of Aleister Crowley that he painted sometime in the 1930s, I think, or maybe earlier than that. And uh, a lot of people are skeptical as to whether it's a self-portrait or not because it looks a lot like a gray alien. It's a, you know, sort of a big headed kind of thing. And it's got a little crown too, I think, or some kind of little hat. Also, Peter Lavenda has it in his office. I found that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's no connection. Oh, sorry, Jake, you go. What's up? Mr. Peter Lavenda, who was definitely not in OTO until he was on National Geographic. <laughs> Performing the ritual. But they let him wear the funny hat. So how do you say no to the funny hat? Oh, the funny hat right. sealed the deal. <laughs> I was just you're talking. Sorry, go ahead. That if you're talking religions, funny hats are like a third of your sales pitch. Oh yeah, very you true. You know what I mean? Oh, if yeah. you don't have good hats, like your religion sucks. <laughs> <laughs> the best, the best ones are the uh, the religions that have a lot of variety too, not just one hat. Oh yeah, yeah. You got to have different hats for different people. You know, there are different grades, sure. different yeah. roles. Yeah, exactly. The I'm Scottish, sure. the Scottish right in the north has nothing on the Scottish right in the south when it comes to magical hats. The, <laughs> the Scottish right in the so, as people may or may not know, I'm sure everyone on this call does, but Scottish right is split up into two different jurisdictions based on the Mississippi River, I believe it is, mixed with the Mason Dixon line. And uh, basically, I, these 15 up here, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, down to like Delaware and Pennsylvania, uh, all the way up to Maine, those are the 15 states that are the northern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, and all the rest, including Hawaii and the magical state of Washington, D.C., uh, are all part of the southern jurisdiction. Southern jurisdiction has like seven or eight hats. Say again? Does that include Minnesota? Uh, Minnesota is in the southern, and so is Washington. That's bizarre. Well, yeah, it's just it's a bad. Uh, I'm not gonna say bad naming, but insert your understanding of what I'm sure. saying here. Yeah, but they have a they have a crap ton of hats. Called it that when they named it, it made sense because right. Yeah, 
That was before Alaska, etc. Um, and you know what this makes me think of is uh, if anyone's seen um, Rejected by Don Hertzfeldt, Silly Hats Only. <laughs> no, I've not seen it, but that sounds fun. I'm g- I'm gonna include Rejected in the show notes because I'm I am shocked and mildly alarmed and maybe even slightly traumatized that I'm on a call with people who have not seen Rejected. Did Don Hertzfeld uh, make uh, it's it's such a beautiful day. Uh, oh gosh. Um, no, I, I'm trying to think of it. Yeah, it, that might be the title, but isn't that whatever the title is now, I can't remember it, but is that not just brilliant? That animated film? It was, uh, oh, it's hard to see. Uh, it's such a beautiful day. Yeah. Uh, no way. Yes. No, 2015, right? Um, I may be looking at the wrong thing. He has oh. a couple of brilliant films. One with a little girl talking about her life. Another one is like an entire life cycle. I think that's it's such yeah. a beautiful day, and people are like arguing and going crazy with each other. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yeah, that, yeah, that is Don Hertzfeld. Yeah, that, uh, that movie. Oh man, I have not seen Rejected though. Is that something newer? Uh, you ever heard the phrase? Have you ever heard someone going, "My spoon is too big"? I know Jake has, but um, <laughs> okay, yeah, I think. I- yeah, is, are those I, the, I, I the series of shorts? No, it's well. Okay, yeah, it's basically like a meta. Uh, before we get too far off of Hellier, it's a it's a meta video. It's a guy who was hired. Don Hertzfeld was hired to do a bunch of advertisements. Oh right, yeah. And basically, the thing. Just watch it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ruin it. It's amazing. I, yep. It's very meta. But yeah, he did like Lily and Jim. Everything will be okay. Uh, rejected, and he's actually good friends with Mike Judge. And uh, of, you know, Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, and Office Space, etc. And um, you can actually find, like, a compilation of Mike Judge animations and Don Hertzfeld together. I used to work at Best Buy for a spell, and they had that there. So I know it exists somewhere along the line. But anyways, so let's get back to uh, the alleged reason that we're all here. Um, I, think, uh, I think this has actually exceeded expectations grand, grandly. But um, yeah, so the fourth episode I found to be the most tedious of the episodes. But um, I guess we could just stick with the from the from the third episode. We did have a uh, a kind of series opener and ender with the tin can because if you notice, the series opens with them looking at the tin can, and this oh. is obviously for people who have seen the show. Blah blah blah. Again, I warned you at the outset. Spoiler aplenty. Uh, there's also in the third episode, they have the actual mention of the tin can. But uh, since Taylor explained the, uh, the first one, Marshall, do you want to give us a, the, the, the skinny, the, sh- the, the shimmy and the shake on the tin can and what happens with that? Sure. So <clears throat> the tin can thing, basically they have this, this dude who is, you know, in his trance or whatever. I mean, he's, he's in a, uh, technically induced trance, right? Technologically induced trance. Connor's using the spirit radio with a blindfold and stuff. Yeah. And, and so basically they're just trying to do divination using uh, like EVP, you know? And so in the context of doing this you know, kind of sensory deprivation combination, um, he gets the image of the tin can. And this becomes a plot point later because it's a very strong image of a tin can and apparently this is a novel experience for him. Uh, so it, it stands out to everybody. I think that the, the tin can thing and seeing stuff like this will happen. 
Um, you can get impressions like this if you, it doesn't take like psychic ability. You don't have to be like a hardcore psychic. I mean, this is just a property of, of the human mind, especially when you subject it to large amounts of information or white noise. I mean, you will get effects like this. That's just a, a property of the human mind. And especially when you introduce directed intention into large amounts of confused information. I mean, that's like an information plasma. You know what I mean? It's just interesting. Associated information particles with no meaning, just flowing by just white noise. Right. So and he specifically saw a tin can. Yeah. And so his, his thing is like the tin can and this stuff will happen. And you know, it appears genuine to me, I guess I have no reason to doubt that this happened to him because it's happened to me. It's happened to countless people that I've talked to. And yep. it's just, it's a real, it's a real phenomenon. So this stuff does, does occur. My concern or not a, necessarily a concern but observation is the fact that they're pulling the information itself from um, an electronic medium and i think that that presents an additional overlay and issue for things because while it's certainly possible for spiritual forces to act through technological means electricity included you know that's certainly possible for synchronicity you do it however you want right i mean but at the same time I think that the fact that the information itself is coming from a technological source based in what is essentially, you know, cyberspace, maybe one or two steps removed, but it's the equivalent of cyberspace because it's on the spectrum with it. Right. And so I, I think that that opens up the possibility that you're getting information from the technological source and that leads to kind of another so let's just do the listener a favor because what you're doing is excellent by breaking down the process, but you're, you're, um, and I'd say very informed understanding of where this is coming from, but we haven't given the listener what happened with the tin can. What the, the tin can, like what, what ultimately happens with the tin can. So if you don't mind my saying what happened was Carl, no, sorry, Connor, Carl's filming this. Connor says, "Oh, I saw a tin can." And then when they got to the cave, what happened? Yeah, well, yeah, I, well, I, I hadn't even gotten there yet. I'm saying just the just the event in this in this episode as it occurs, right? That that's all I'm talking about. And I, I think that you know the the impression itself and the way that it's presented and the way that they get it is very important to to have that to have that context. Um, okay, I w- I would think that it would be it's good yeah. either way. Go ahead. Yeah. I think that as a standalone topic, we, we, we kind of have to look at where they got the information, how this, this happens, right? And so, as you said, the tin can comes up later because as they, when they finally get to this cave, at the end of all of the synchronicities, the cave at the end of this thing, there is what for all the world and to them is the tin can that he saw when he had this event, right? It's pretty so amazing. That, yeah, and well, that tin can becomes the thing that basically ties a bow on it and said, okay, well, that somehow that was it. Yep. And that, you know, we, we don't know why, and no one knows why, except the person who designed this thing, or maybe it's not even a person. Yeah, and so, it's interesting because it wasn't your normal tin can, like your can of green beans or a Campbell's soup can. Yeah. It was a more specific shape and size, like... Yeah. So, yeah, so when he's like, the tin can I saw, because yeah. we we're all picturing when he said tin can, yeah, for the classic side type. Yeah. 
mean? And it was yeah. definitely not that one, you know? Yeah, but he points out he points out that he didn't see a tin, or he saw a tin can with no label, and then they found one that this kind of blank tin can. And then what was really interesting was when he's reading, I think it was uh, a flying saucers to the center of your mind. Is that the name of that book by Excellent. John Keel? Yes, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Great. So he he was reading that book, and and he, you know John Keel's explaining chimeras and describes how they can appear as something like an animated tin can. But then I think in that he also described it as a few inches tall and, or in some kind of account. And I thought that was an interesting description. I guess, you know, a few inches tall is going to be a can no matter what, but the, <laughs> the can, the can that they found seemed a little bit short to me. Yes, it did. I mean, it looked like a tinier can. It, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like a, a five inch tall can. It was like maybe three inches tall. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But you guys are all three of you saying important things here. And I really like adding that kicker about that John Keel bit, uh, flying saucers to the center of your mind, because that also ties together the weird stuff that, you know, they said that they heard in the, the, you know, I found that a bit of a stretch. What I'm talking about, of course, is how they said that was an update of the car horn, which Keel gives us the baby yeah. crying in the car horn or sorry, yeah, car door slamming. It was the door slamming. And yeah. Was, yeah. Was you know what? I thought that was a quite a bit of a stretch myself too because they were really milking it at that point. I mean, with all respect, and like we go back to Marshall's accurate um understanding that they were very professional. Uh at that point maybe they just had some jet lag or something. I don't know. It just felt like that was um the the shark was uh, officially jumped uh when Actually, they pulled that. That that brings something up that I was wanting to kind of bring up. Um there's a part, I think it's actually at the very end of the whole um, cave experience when they're, when they're done doing the spirit box a second time. The, yeah. the last thing that Connor says is celebrate active. Celebrate two, two words. Active. Yeah. Celebrate active. And then, and then he says that to everyone. He says, yeah, I, you know, I just said celebrate active. And, and I thought, oh, you know, it's good to be active to be out and, and doing stuff with friends. And then hard cut to, you know, Greg explaining, oh, or actually I think it was uh, hard cut to Connor re-explaining it as celebrate activity. And then, and then Greg coming on explaining celebrate activity and talking about activity in the sense of like paranormal activity. And I thought that, that kind of changes it. That wasn't the word that was said and that wasn't how Connor interpreted it at the time. At least it didn't seem like it was. And that really changes the whole meaning of the you know celebrate active versus celebrate activity are very different ideas you know mm -hmm. you know what the sense i get when i hear the word celebrate active in the context of the conversation that we've been having this evening um i recall to mind the name of the oto lodge that you gentlemen were discussing earlier mm -hmm. what was it leaping Laughter. laughter. Yep. Leaping, uh, weeping laughter. Yeah. And so, and so laughter, the sense yeah. that I get from leaping laughter is the same sort of thing that I get from celebrate. Celebrate active. active. That's interesting. interesting. That's kind of like another connection back to this OTO thing. Not saying that that lodge perpetrated it, but it's indicative of the attitude that they would adopt in this sort of thing. Right. I mean, huh. 
all okay. in all, it, the, the LARP is the divine play, right? It's Leela. It's participatory dramaturgy. It's all of okay. these things. And so that's the primary operating mechanism of a lot of these systems. So I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that that perfectly encapsulates the ethos of what just happened, right? Are you saying ourselves from it? But we're sitting here, we're making this podcast where we're talking about it. Um, maybe that's what they were talking about even in the show, and they didn't even really know what they were talking about. And that's why they changed it to celebrate activity. Well, yeah, and, you know. Well, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing it directly. Are we talk? Isn't the the lodge called weeping laughter? No, 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 no. leaping Weep. with an L. Oh, that's why I had mentioned magic without tears earlier. Oh, gotcha. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I like the weeping laughter. That sounds even more OTO to my brain, but okay. Yeah, that is more intense. You know what I mean? But that leaping laughter now. Yeah. Say again? I was saying weeping laughter is more the union of opposites there. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, but no, now I can understand why I celebrate. Now, see, I now I can see what you're saying, um, but I really don't remember if it was celebrate activity or celebrate active and that the ex post facto changed it yeah you can you can go back and watch it he says at the time when he's got the spirit box on he says celebrate active and then and then when he like gets up he takes the spirit box stuff off and he goes yeah the last thing i heard there was celebrate active made me think this and then and then it hard cuts to like a confessional style where they're in you know in the in the room doing the interviews and he's like yeah i saw it it said celebrate activity and so that that's kind of like a really weird hard distinction of of the change there oh i agree and uh, there was one other thing oh the echo so uh kind of changing subjects a little bit greg mentions when they first enter the tunnel there's like a this interview in in the room and he he says one of the strangest and most unsettling things was there was no echo in this area. Right. And, and I thought that's really interesting, but you know, cause he's like, Oh, we thought we'd be going in there to do calls, you know, or, or whatever. And we'd be making all this noise. Enochian but, calls. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was thinking Bigfoot calls, but that, that you never know. But you know, he's, he's like, there was no echo. And I'm thinking, well, why, why is there then no footage of them hollering into this tunnel and trying to create an echo and showing that there's no echo, you know, and, and I'm thinking if I'm, if I'm going to believe them, if I'm going to trust these people, I'm guessing they experienced no echo, but when they went back to look at it, they recorded echoes and maybe they just didn't, you know, didn't want to expound on that as much so that they could leave that element of creepiness that they felt when they were there. That's if I'm going to trust that these people are you know, telling the truth about all this stuff. That's so. a good point because he did say in that same, in the fifth episode scene that he was talking about how the creepiest thing was that it was so still or something. And that kind of like left me a little cold, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you guys, do you guys remember that part? Yeah, yeah but and there was the guy who was saying that, what was it, Connor? Connor, yeah. was saying he was feeling cold when he was doing it. Oh, yeah. No, that was Greg when he was doing the Gansfeld experiment. Yeah, yeah, that was Greg. Um, Marshall, do you remember this bit? Um, 
I mean, I, I, it kind of blends together for me after a while. Like I said earlier, it's, you know, the traditional ghost hunter television presentation really is, it's not amenable to, to me. Like, I, I don't, I don't mean that as an indictment of the whole genre. I'm just saying like, personally for me, it doesn't do it for me. And that's not, you know, against anyone as an artist or creator. Almost the Blair Witch Project kind of thing going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me, let me, let me get you, Jake, to talk about the other uh, kind of big numerical or other in general synchronicity they had with the precog type stuff with the uh, last part where he talked about one hour and then in an hour, what happened in the cave at the very end at the fifth episode? What did happen? I forget. <laughs> um, basically, and I found this interesting because um, they had a big kind of whoosh go by, like an ominous whoosh kind of thing going on. Like, uh, and there's like, oh, one hour ago at twelve oh nine or eleven oh, it was nine eleven backwards. It was one one nine. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, about twelve oh nine, they had a loud like. They said it was like a train going by, basically. Like a vibration. Yeah. Holy was- shit. And none of it came to Did the train just go by? No, 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 no. This is the third time today it's happened. Holy what? fucking shit. Oh, I'm what getting happened? the chills. Um, no, I, okay, so first they described a train going by, and a train went by when it happened. I live near the train. Um, okay. They, they said it again, and the train went by again. It was like a very recent, it was like a fairly um, sudden train. And I mentioned the fucking train, and now the train's going by. <laughs> wow! Oh, holy smokes, Marshall, get your uh, get your larp hats. This <laughs> no man, you, you, your subconscious will arrange things. You know, <laughs> it's, it's no, very, it's because it's, we're on the electronics. That's it's the electronics, dude. Yeah, it could be. You know, the the thing with the synchronicity and stuff like that. I mean, if we're talking about young, it's it's basically. You know. Okay, yeah, I think I do remember now because it was after that whoosh too. After they said one hour, yeah, and that's when they all got the feeling that the whole thing was done. Yep. Yeah. After that, they're like, okay, that's it. You know, pack it up, go home. This is over. A few other things that they did in there, like there are some goods and some not so goods. Like one of them was like, okay, we've gone to this pile of rubble, so that means you should go to that pile of rubble. <laughs> Assuming these things speak English and like, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, my my opinion when I when I saw that I was like, man, if you're taking as as you know as possibly true the fact that this force arranged for you to come out here, you know, and now you're here after all of this time and all that it's done, it's gonna like, you know, respond to your commands like a pet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, because I remember I was sitting there and I was like, when I was watching, I was like, put myself in the position of the little goblin guy. Like, I wouldn't go out there either. (laughs) And then less than less than a minute later, Greg starts moving up. He's like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to go further now. Yeah. Yeah. We got here. You go there. JK, I'm going to go there, too. Did she say careful? There are spiders. I s- it sounded like she, she said, careful. she said something about being careful. I Be careful. And he says, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, like his mom was like, so like, yeah, I know. And then like, but it sounded like she said there are spiders. And I was just like, oh. of all the things. So, um, they also talked about how, um, they heard. Yeah. 
they weren't worried about snakes in that big tall grass, which they should have been. Right. They worried about or, the little or goblins. <laughs> well, the thing is, they also heard something say, "Guys." Yep. Yeah, I remember that. So they all. And you could hear it on the video, but it almost did kind of sound like it was spliced in, if you really want. Yeah, I, I don't really have much to... I just remember that was the thing that happened. I wanted yeah. to see if anyone else here recognized that these little guys look just like Stitch from Lilo and Stitch. Oh, yeah, in the uh, the original um, Hopkinsville case and stuff. The Hopkinsville yeah, sure. case. So that makes me think that just like how there's a Pokemon from like crap generation because the only two real pokemon are red and blue represent i would <laughs> i uh, it was going so well until i brought up pokemon um <laughs> speaking of live action role plays and fucking people walking in the streets uh virtual reality games there jesus the second i saw pokemon go i'm like yeah there goes the reality um when uh when they had this there's a pokemon that's based off of the hopkinsville case it's actually this really creepy. Oh. Yeah, they made a Pokemon based off of it, so I figured, why not? Maybe Stitch is based off of that too. Yeah, I think that when I first saw the depiction of the alleged entities, the, the sense that I got is like, oh, well, this is not an alien. I mean, this is something that, that these things just live in the Earth. Like they, they've been here as long as we have, probably longer. I mean, they probably have better technology, but they're like a different order or class of being than we are and like they they're not supposed to interact with us all the time right yeah. and that, that when you go back to the like the traditional cultures that's what they're t that's what they're going to tell you is that you don't want to see one of these things yes exactly yeah. there are some fairies you want to see and there are other fairies that you don't want to see and that you just see lower yeah see one of the, these things taylor what was the one you said but, the Seely and the Unseely. Also, real quick, the Pokemon is called Sableye, and it's got giant blue eyes. Uh, uh, there's Sableye, and then there's Sable, like Mega Sableye. Yeah, Mega Sableye. Yep. Yeah. But, did, uh, did you know that from looking it up, or did you happen to know because you're you're into the Pokemon? Oh, I, I, I looked it up, but I, I had an idea of which Pokemon it was, but I couldn't remember what it was called. That's cool. I like um, I like the like I said, the red and blue are the only ones for me. But whatevs, Jake, what are you gonna say? Um, I was just saying, yeah, that's the, you don't want to see those kinds of things. You know, those aren't the ones you want to see. These sure. aren't the droids you're looking for. I mean, yep. I want to see them, but, uh, well, uh, yeah, I've seen, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't know what it was at the time. And then later on, I came across it in a book and I was like, it was actually in Massachusetts in Gloucester. No shit. Yeah. And we were pulling in. And it was this, it was blacker than black. And it was running at the same speed as the car. We we're probably going 35 miles an hour. And it was running alongside the car at the same speed. And it was really weird. And so it was super blacker than black. And it seemed like the back end of it, it was very feline looking. And the back end of it hadn't fully manifested in. It kind of like went off into amorphousness and then like fully manifested like as we were looking at it. So, and it, so, uh, what town were you in? Gloucester, 
Yeah, I thought you said that. The glo- Okay, and that's famous for the fishermen and the fish sticks, and uh, they have a nice record store there, and the three old ladies who work there really like Steely Dan. Fact. They have the, <laughs> they have the beach there with the big rocks and stuff. Yeah, yeah and they got some great beer there. If I were still drinking, I'd, I'd definitely say that, but I'll still say that. I forgot what the name of the beer is, but I'll put it in the show notes. It's real damn good. Anyways, please. So you saw this thing in Gloucester, and that's not in, by the way, the Bridgewater Triangle, which is another yeah. Massachusetts anomaly. And yeah, I th- but the thing that we saw, so like later on, it was like a while later too, I came across it in a book. It's called The Dover Demon. Ah. So, which Dover isn't very close to Gloucester either. They're both in Mass, but they're not that close. You know? I'm, I'm Where I'm at right now on the outskirts of Boston is right next to Dover just about. It's actually someplace I travel yeah, through. The other side of Boston, basically. It's Yeah, it's some, from Gloucester, definitely. It's somewhere I travel through to get to the Enchanted Fox, uh, down right. 109. But um, All right, so I hope you're enjoying the show so far. This is the part in the podcast where people who have donated at an executive or associative executive producer level will get to have their name called out and a message that they would like to have shouted out read. Uh, For this episode, we have, well, it looks like we have a few uh, who have donated $200 and over, but they've all asked to remain anonymous. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Well, we'll keep moving along. So, this is also the part where I just want to make a couple of notes before we continue on. We began this episode before I had read and received Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, which, interestingly enough, the copy that I'm holding in my hand right now that I've read since I received it yesterday, the 27th, and today, the 28th, when this episode is being released... The book itself was printed on the day of our conversation. So there's all sorts of synchronicities lining up. It says, Made in the USA in Middletown, Delaware, 26 February 2019. That's quite something when you think about it. As it is, we're going to get back to our conversation. I'm just going to add and further clarify that since reading Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, that... It's almost like being initiated. (laughs) I have a very different outlook of the topics that we've spoken about in this episode just two days ago on Tuesday, which is a Mars day. And of course, I was wearing my Cannabox Hellboy Dispensary t-shirt to fit in with the Hellier. And of course, I got Hank here still with us. And I really want to say that I'm going to have to do a follow-up conversation regarding Hellier, especially given the information that's in these books. I'm not saying that I'm a true believer of everything that's presented in them, but it certainly does paint a different picture, provides a different lens for a new angle to see things through. So without further ado, back to the show. All right. So basically uh, what we're talking about is the final few episodes and their grand culmination going out into the cave and a few episodes ago they had made offerings of tobacco and stuff like that and oh that's right we didn't we didn't even mention that yeah there was a couple of seancey like things that they did wasn't there taylor maybe you can take us off on there well first off yeah you mentioned the uh they offered tobacco and candles i think it was like 
eight, eight or twelve candles, something like that. Um, which looked like they just kind of lit on the grass somewhere, just lit a bunch of candles on the grass. Um, one sec. Yeah, I remember that stuck me as struck me as odd. They were like birthday candles, it looked like too. Yeah, little yeah. Like taper candles. Yeah, and uh, they were they were uh, they lit those candles and offered tobacco with the intention of uh, drawing out whatever spirits were there, um, which is which is fascinating. But it's kind of like a, a fairy offering in a way. Yeah, you know, tobacco. It's really Native American. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. But, Tobacco is also offered in a lot of uh, other magical ceremonies too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, just the idea of like lighting candles and, and trying to kind of beckon up the, the the spirits of the forest, you know, or the spirits of the cave in this in this sense. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't it make sense? I mean, now that we're talking about this thing in the context of the OTO, I mean, all the magic stuff, I mean, makes perfect sense, right? If you're sure. gonna, if this is, if that's really what's behind you know, the genesis of this thing, ultimately. Uh, they're going to want to display magical rituals and have people, in effect, participate in them by observing them. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's right. participatory dramaturgy, and the whole point of this thing is once you watch that, you go out and replicate it in the world, and then you talk about it, and you perpetuate it, and it like perpetuates itself, and it becomes and a form of momentum that somebody can use. It becomes a virus, like like they were saying at the end of the uh, episode five. Like, yeah. Yeah, in in one way it's a virus, but I, I the sense I get from it is, is momentum. Sure, and, and I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in in a viral sense, like a oh, yeah. kind of like mimetic type of thing. Hundred percent. I mean, I think when we say viral, what that is is actually a large, you know, momentum of consciousness, right? Right. Mm -hmm. That's really what that is, and and people should understand that that's a form of momentum, just like any other kind of momentum. And it can be captured and it can be used. If, and, and if you generate a bunch of momentum in the social sphere like that, it, you could use it in a magical sense that, you know, the, the effect of it wouldn't be known maybe to the people outside of the ritual, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Particularly the crowd of people I see talking about it all the time. Yeah. You know, talking about, about Hellier or? Yeah. There's more the esoterically inclined Right. You know what yeah. I mean? So they're already kind of got one foot in each world in, as it is, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, with the whole idea of synchronicity, that's the kind of crowd that we're talking about, of course, the people who notice that green language, so to speak. Yeah, I don't even think the show would even be that interesting to people that aren't esoterically inclined, you know? Yeah. I'm, uh, they wouldn't get I it. It'd be like nothing happened. I've been recommending the show to pretty much everybody and I'm trying to see who will watch it and who's what, what kind of responses there's, there is going to be. Um, so far I've only gotten one person to watch it and I know them to have done magic. So, you know, it's kind of already there. Um, but, uh, you know, like, I lost my train of thought. Well, that, that makes sense though. I mean, if the people who are watching it are already, you know, tuned in. Those are the first people who this would actually reach, you know. Um, people who are going to listen to this are probably the same kind of crowd. They're the people who are going to be interested in Hellier-type events and people who are going to, you know, notice that there are these a-causal so-called connections. You know what I mean? 
So it sounds like, and it, it, we're kind of skirting around this, but it sounds like we're talking about some kind of intention in, in making this documentary. And I, I definitely got that feel, but what, what really would be the intention of putting something like this out there and who's behind it? If, if not, you know, Greg and Dana Newkirk, for instance, and, and, and these, this team of, of researchers who clearly look like they're behind it. Well, even they would, even they say that like, they don't know who the, well, they don't even know if this, uh, David Christie exists. Right. Dr. David Christie. Doctor. Yeah. There's some serious doubt whether he actually exists or not. Well, the emails came from this, uh, Terry wrist is. Well, the emails came from Canada too. There's that whole part where they have their friend, Stephen Hart go on and talk about the origin of where the emails came from. And it looked like they were coming from Canada. No, they thought it was coming from Canada when they traced the IP. Yeah. They didn't realize how the email chain works. Uh, It was bouncing off nearby servers, basically. Yeah. Right. So I guess we're left with, they don't know the origin of it at all. That's what it boiled down to. Yeah. Yeah. Back to California. And and that's. Yes. Go. The documentary it itself, anything, you know. Yeah, I mean, it could be could be literally anywhere. Yeah. The yep. point, the, the two points the documentary makes, and I think we should take them at, at face value in a certain way because, regardless of you know Greg and Dana Newkirk's position on this, I don't know them as people. I don't even really know their work, um, I, so I have nothing to do with them. But I think we can safely kind of say that whoever is ultimately behind uh, getting this thing going the way Mm -hmm. that's probably the OTO in some way, maybe it's not them, you know, the OTO as like a a specific lodge, but at least people who are familiar with their practices or at least connected with the people who were behind the uh, cipher, the UFO uh, UFO knots, right? Or maybe this T. Allen Greenfield is behind it. Yeah. You're reading reading my mind. Because, Way they really put so he was no longer in the OTO, yeah, because he didn't feel like they were affecting the world, right? Yeah, and I, I think the, the simple fact that the documentary is out there and it's popular, so everything that was in it like had to have been really supported by the ultimate uh, generators of the project, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can safely assume that whoever it is, they want everyone to believe or at least know or have the possibility of knowing that the ultimate source of this email is connected with the secret site for the euphonos. It's like that, that is something that they purposefully try to show, right? Right. With Terry wrist. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, they put it in there as a plot point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, like Jake did is going to find out like, Oh, this dude, you know, OTO, like, blah, 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 blah. Like there it is. Yeah, but he's yeah. not in the OTO anymore. It was 10 years after he left the OTO. Well, he's too, yeah, because he, he's too cool for the OTO, and that's why you should right. like him and not the OTO, right? <laughs> Fair. Well, the Gnostic churches, as is, is, is explained to me, the Gnostic Catholic churches, it's not exactly an appendant group to the OTO. It's almost like they're the priest craft of the OTO. They're the ones who are the higher ups and running the rituals themselves. Hmm. So, for whatever that's worth, the if, officers of the EGC are officers in the are 
certain levels in the OTO. So right, yeah. and if they're not affecting the world to the degree that one of their head clergy wants them to, it definitely seems like where we've come full circle to with hellier as an operation magical or documentary or otherwise it seems like this is the next wave in trying to impact the larger culture as a whole you know up to the point where i just had a really unique experience not worth going into right now but it even had flashing lights of all sorts (laughs) that was you want to see yeah plus the train thing Oh, and the train went by again when this was happening, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, oh, I guess it's a suitable time to mention, like, one of, the, one, of the, one of the ongoing larger sinks in my life, which ties into this, is that a cult fan, which I officially became on 666, on, and by the way, I saw a license plate with 666 on it today, and someone said that they really liked my music, and... They uh, shared what I said with 666 in it. Um, they, yeah, they, they literally shared my response to them and added 666 to the thing. Huh. When you look at a cult fan, um, I, didn't, I, I neglected to give my introduction. You know, I introduced you guys earlier in the show. Everybody um, knows you, right? <laughs> this is going, yeah, this is going somewhere, actually. Uh, basically... Um, what happened was, was, uh, I got my name, a cult fan from final fantasy eight and in final fantasy eight, there's a paranormal magazine that's called a cult fan. And, uh, I'll say that my grandfather took his three Masonic degrees when, uh, he was 33. My father took his three degrees when he was 69 and I took mine when I was 33 which gematrias or numerologies out to 666. Masonry is about Solomon, and they say it's a, a mystic tie or a band or a ring. And so in Final Fantasy, you have Solomon's ring. And when you see that you need 666 items to activate it, that would be my grandfather, my father, and I'd be the final one in the chain. You would see that you summon an entity known as Doom Train. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's really right there because you make the Solomon's ring, and that's how you're supposed to control the 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 entities there. Spirits. Yeah. yeah Correct. Brings us back to the OTO again if we're going to be talking about Boeotia, So Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh. Can I say one thing? Marshall um, hit it. So when we were talking earlier about uh, the portrayal of these entities, yeah, you know, I think that now I think we all kind of get what's going on with this thing. Um, and so we can kind of start analyzing it on what does someone want to be out there in the consciousness, right? Um, yeah. And so one, one thing I think is very interesting is the portrayal of these beings, right? Because if you go kind of around the world in different places, you've got things that are very, very similar to this. They're denizens of the earth, like we were talking about earlier. They're a different class of beings. They're not supposed to interact with us, right? Mm-hmm. But when they do, 
uh, it's bad luck and bad for the people that it happens to, right? And this is the generally the understanding of the traditional cultures where wherever you are, like these things are not good to see. You don't want to see these guys. Uh, the problem is when when you have situations where the spirit world, for lack of a better term, uh, that other side of reality, the other classes of beings that are resident here with us that are not typically supposed to interact with us, uh, when that starts happening and they start interacting with humanity in a, in a like in lots of cases a lot, right? And humans start interacting with them in the spirit world and the uh, the human world start interacting that's a bad thing for the planet and disasters happen after that. Um, and so that, you know, it, it, this is outside of the shamanic tradition. So in, in the shamanic tradition, you have basically a, a, an entire part of society whose job it is to make sure this process goes right. Uh, and when you don't have that, and it's basically just a diffuse democratized interaction that's basically chaotic, uh, it, it's bad for the ecology of the planet. And, and so you have situations like in ancient China, they, they talked about one of the last times this happened and the spirits, you know, just random people started interacting with spirits and the spirit world started merging onto this, you know, in this world. Well, if things started going haywire and there were tons of natural disasters and horrible things were happening everywhere. And so they had to basically cut it off. Um, and so when we see situations where these beings are now being seen all the time, or at least someone has the desire to make us believe that that's happening all the time. Uh, th th I guess that's where my concern comes is that who, who wants us to believe that this is happening all the time? It may be, but I think it's interesting to consider because typically these things are seen in a lot of cultures around the world as uh, heralds or, Portent, like bad omen an omen which is yeah. the movie which is the yeah. film i saw when i became a cult fan was on 666 i saw the film the omen it came out that day oh wait do you mean the original or the one that came out that day i mean the remake that came out yeah, okay. that day the our generations one <laughs> yep and i did mention the name doom train i'm feeling really kind of weird right now <laughs> <laughs> like so that's weird. yeah like not just we but w y um i i don't even i'm kind of like entering a state of catatonia for a second here uh if you'll allow me i'm gonna read my intro right now quickly and introduce myself near the end of the show uh i'm nathan lee miller foster i'm a cult fan i'm born on hobbit day which, by the way, I'll just interject, these, I, these beings are associated with the element of Earth, which are known as gnomes, not so much sylphs, undines, or uh, salamanders, but uh, gnomes or hobbits. Uh, my favorite book is Alice in Wonderland. I've seen UFOs a few times, um, and I've been a cult fan since June 6, 2006. A cult fan is a paranormal magazine in Final Fantasy VIII, uh, which is known for its chronicling of everything from cryptids, metamaterials, UFOs, interdimensionals, angelic intelligences, and magical artifacts, all of which I have interests in. And that kind of ties us around to what we were just saying. 
Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I, I'm suspicious that there are forces who want the world to believe that the conditions associated with the end of the world are in fact occurring. That, that I, I, I concur why, to a degree. Yes, but, but why? Right. Yeah. A thonatic drive that thinks that by immunitizing the eschaton or the eschaton, we're going to enter into a new aeon. And by doing so, we're birthing a new world, which these people who may be trying to be this new zero point can find that just as Tracy Twyman writes in Genuflect, that they'll believe that they're in control of. But yeah. surely, surely there's, more than one, there's more than one group trying to do things like this. Or more than one person. I don't doubt it. Probably with different intentions. Battling classes of magicians and groups, sure. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've thought about the same types of things, Marshall. Like, trying to figure out, you know, is there somebody... Um, oh, I think he just dropped out for a second. No, he's back. Yeah, I had uh, a um, pick up for a second. Keep going, Taylor. Oh, just like what you're saying, Marshall, with, you know, like, why? Why are these types of ideas being floated out there right now? Why, like, why are people supposed to believe that this is going on, right? And in some ways, I think it's because, you know, like you said, it, it, it is going on, right? Like, these things are happening. You know, people are experiencing these strange things. But is it happening any more now than it has in, you know, in the past, or I, I would assume not. I would assume, if anything, it's the same or, or less than it has been in the past because we live in such a kind of materialist paradigm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. Well, and I think that's why they want to... They're aliens from outer space instead of fairies and demons or whatever these days. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're clearly the same thing, but... Uh, they've now couched it in this materialist perspective, you know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> from the Final Fantasy VIII point of view, they call the alien that has a classic saucer, they call him Poo-Poo, P-U-P-U, <laughs> which I think is code for bullshit. They're saying, that's obvious, we know this is bullshit, and when you rearrange that, Poo-poo is actually, when you use backwards speak or, you know, Crowley's Twin Peaks learn to speak backwards as forwards, you get up, up, which seems to indicate a higher dimension. Poo-poo also has a uh, new Aeon English Kabbalah sum of 86, and that equals the same as beware. And also um, breath. And especially spelled P-U-P-U, the poo-poo platter and Chinese restaurants, which is always what comes on fire. <laughs> so it's associated with fire. Oh, man. This is getting to be heavy. <laughs> the cosmic fire. Jesus. I, I really think that the only reason that extraterrestrials that, you know, have been bandied about is this big thing is because they, they need the powers that be like really need a biological entity for somebody to give their sovereignty to, right? Like that, that's the thing is like the, the alien thing for me, if I, if I look at all the narratives that are being floated about this stuff, the main one seems to be, 
aliens came here and genetically engineered humanity, right? And so if that's the, if that's like as close as mainstream science is ever going to get, because that's probably where that arc is headed, um, is, sure. is to that. And so basically you're going to get scientific proof or, or evidence, uh, at least in a legal at least sufficiently for a legal case to say that some aliens basically own humanity. I mean, like that's the, the end of that argument. Hmm. And that's it's interesting. Yeah. Well, it, it's a walkabout way to say that whoever is closest to them, you know, owns humanity, right? I mean, they get to be the de facto, um, you know, trustee for that estate of the aliens, you know, maybe they come back, maybe they don't, you know, if yeah. this, maybe they'll, you know, pull out some, UFOs that they made that look like aliens and just shoot some people and then be like, Oh, okay, well, I guess they are here. Maybe we better listen to these fuckers. You know, right? like, like that's, that's really where I see that. that or it's the, the reason to, okay, we all got to work together because we got this, these aliens coming. So the know. whole project blue book thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, bringing us back around to uh, the X-Files again. Uh, full circle is the theme again, and uh, they had an episode. I think the second season again, called EBE or uh, extra uh, extraterrestrial biological entity or whatever the an acronym stands for. Of course, the Jersey Devil is uh, mentioning the whole John Keel events with the uh, Mothman type inspiration. I think the Mothman's mentioned in the fifth episode of the first season, the Jersey Devil. Hmm. And I can't but help but think to bring us back around that they really are trying to pull on those threads of straight man, you know, uh, believable man or whatever with Fox and Dana. And they did it again with talking about Kyle and Connor in the second episode. They pulled the same thing, saying that Kyle is more reserved, mm, I think, yep. or whatever. One of the two was. It yep. doesn't matter at this point. But um, it's just really striking that they had the whole I want to believe thing. And, of course, we're saying maybe this LARP is about getting people to want to believe. And that was in there the whole time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I even got it written down on this little dealy just to join in the fun. And, uh, you know, they do mention fringe topics and stuff like that. And I think that they were trying to draw fringe, the TV shows, uh, synchronistic energy into this which is about the two worlds interacting with each other correct and by yeah. the way i live in i'm just blowing my spot right now but it is what it is i live in front of a setting in fringe there's literally right where that train's going by is a setting it wasn't filmed on location but it had the name of the train station underneath the uh the fringe thing uh, mm-hmm. on the Fringe episode. So it was literally the climax of a Fringe episode that took place in front of my house. Yeah. Weird. Because that, yeah, they were the Harvard team or whatever, so, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, they filmed it at Yale, of course, the Skull and Bones place, but <laughs> it was supposed to be Harvard and everything well, in Boston. But they filmed it at Yale. <laughs> I need to go back and rewatch that show. I haven't seen that in years. Uh, speaking of a year ago, I love that show. It's one of my favorites. Okay, get this. This is something I just found out about. Megan freaking Markle was on two episodes of Fringe. Yes, who's who's that? The Queen of England, the 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 Princess, the Duchess of Wales, whatever it is. Okay, New Diana. 
which is mentioned in The Invisibles. That was all freaking crazy. But yeah, so the princess of England, basically, was in two episodes of Fringe. Yeah, she's an FBI agent in Fringe. She was meant to be a foil oh, to Olivia. Yeah. How crazy is that? Interesting. Huh. And of course, Rupert Murdoch owns the whole thing, and he's big money, and I don't even know where we're going, but speaking of putting... <laughs> putting ideas in people's heads. And of course, Twin Peaks is about the two different worlds interacting and the choice to be part of the black or the white lodge. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned Twin Peaks because I wanted to kind of just put this out there because we mentioned episode eight earlier of the return. Mm -hmm. And that basically encapsulates the entire story of what's going on right now. (laughs) Episode eight with letting the entities in. Yep. And so David Lynch and Mark Frost and whoever was involved in that did a fantastic job of taking something that is the weirdest story of all time and putting it into a slightly less weird and understandable form. Like the the thing that we're seeing that everyone thinks is so strange is, is like the less weird version of what it actually looks like. So I think, and uh, and I apologize. uh, Is that episode the the one with uh, nine inch nails as the musical. That's guy. right. She's gone. Yep. Talking gone. about Sophia, probably the wisdom of the world. Yeah. Hmm. And I also want to say, like, from my own experience and everything that I have seen and learned and read and everything else, the depiction of the two entities, um, the tall guy, the giant, and mm-hmm. that lady. You know, the, f- the fireman. Yeah, the fire, the fireman, and <clears throat> I don't, don't remember what they call the lady. But that that whole scene is so representative, I think, of what it would be like to step into someone who's working with UFO technology. Like that—that's right. what it would be like. Like time is disjointed, and all it is is like a weird kind of simulacra version of a real life, but it's all centered around the Nazi bell type thing that's sitting. Oh yeah. Good one, dude. Yeah. Cause then, (laughs) um, cause uh, David Bowie is now like a weird tea kettle looking thing, pumping out steam letters. Think of the hookah smoking caterpillar. Go look at the fireman's living room. He's got the Nazi bell sitting in his living room. He definitely has a giant bell in there. Yeah. And that could like that could have to do with like dimensional like um the ringing of a bell like you know like in Fire Walk with me speaking of firemen we got oh my phone has a little ring and we get back into rings but that talks about, <laughs> that talks about cymatics and vibrations and opening dimensions using vibrations. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's they're in a UFO basically, right? I mean, it's just you think of the UFO more like the TARDIS or whatever. I mean, it, it's like you go in it and the field is like in different points in space all at the, in time, all at the same time. And so like, that's yep. just what it's like living in that reality. So it's just weird. Well, the third episode of the return has the mauve room, which is a direct link, I think inspired by OTO Kenneth Grant and talking about the mauve zone. Is that, is that where everything's all weird and reversey and, <coughs> And the woman, the woman's there. The, yeah, uh, my mother's coming back or something like that. Right. That yeah. makes me think of Tool yeah. with mom's going to come back around and fix everything. And they're talking oh, an about anima. in Anima, that's Anima and Enema. 
uh, portmanteaued, and they're talking about you know California falling into the ocean from the fault line, the San Andreas fault line, like Superman. I mean, we're I think we're really striking a lot of uh, really potent uh, topics near the end of our talk here. I feel like we could actually like do another talk sometime soon. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to keep, you know, we can go on a little further, but I want to cut this off at some point because, you know, I mean, just like Lynch had to make it only six, 18 episodes, which is a one and an eight, which is a nine, which goes on forever. Like number nine, number nine, because the, <laughs> the nine is the horizon nine and the horizon nine is infinite. Wherever you go, there's always another horizon and that's, of course, alluding to the maths of nines when you multiply nine by anything or when you add nine in gematria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I haven't even seen The Prisoner. I need to watch that, though. Um, since I was a teenager. So, so guys, why don't, why don't – oh, Taylor, you, do you want – is that Marshall or Taylor? You go first. Um, let me just say one more thing and then, like, I'm, I'm – Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the right after you see the in, in that episode where the fireman and the wife, right, when, when they create the Laura orb, right, that whole scene is the most perfect pictorial description of the Zoroastrian cosmology that I've ever seen. Hmm. And, you know, and then you get allusions from that to Ezekiel's wheel and everything else because of all the gears and everything. But in the broad strokes, it is the Zoroastrian cosmology in a like little nutshell. Um, and I, I, I thought it was perfect. And it struck me when I saw it last night. It's like, oh man, they got it. That's, that's just Zoroastrianism. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. Excellent insights. I hadn't made that connection before, but the duality, certainly not Zoroastrianism. Wow. That's pretty uh, fascinating. Fucking fascinating. All right, guys. Um, so let's uh, let's enter into the wrap up phase right now. Yeah. Um, Taylor, uh, you you want to start us off with any of your final thoughts of the evening? Maybe how crazy it is this all came together, or any? Did oh. anyone else have anyone take a picture of them this evening, or anything going? Okay, Taylor, I, uh, you, you go. Yeah, no, it's uh, huh. my my mind's just kind of blown right now. Uh, there's a lot going on, but uh. This has been a really interesting talk. Um, just to kind of wrap up on on the subject of Hellier, you know, I think I think that whatever's going on with that documentary and with these conversations that are following it, and whatever whatever season two might come out, or, or yeah. you know, what whatever other books might be written, I this, think that whatever's whatever's kind of being set in motion isn't over, and and we're just sort of seeing the beginning of it. Yeah, and I think the world. <laughs> You know, I uh, I could uh, have to eat my own shoe on this, but I think the world's about to get a lot stranger. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say this conversation is Hellier Season 2. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think that, like I mentioned, birth pangs. I think you're correct. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, but I agree with you fully. And uh, so um, anything else, Taylor, or shall we move along to... Our oh, good yeah, I think the Marshall. Mm -hmm. Dude, bitchin', bitchin' repose. Uh, Marshall, what's up? Um, I'm gonna... Okay, so the, the last thing that comes to me, and this was an impression that I, I can't deny. Something about this feels blue chicken to me. 
blue chicken. He's referring to the Corey Good, David Wilcock, disinformation, oh, the blue, blue PSA, cults. Yeah, all in the, the marketing group, presented, journalist. And in the way it appears that, you know, whether by design or, you know, just de facto, it's capturing all the attention. Mm-hmm. Whether it was intended that way in the first place or whether it's just become that way just, you know, by accident of history, uh, this thing is now the primary vehicle that's capturing the attention of the alternative community, or at least is trying to be bandied about as something that would do that. Yep. And when I see that, I think, oh, well, the Blue Chickens already tried to do that with the you know, SSP UFO crowd. And so, you know, maybe this is something else like that. See, I, talking about OTO LARPs, you bring up the blue chickens, you know what I mean? But, and, okay, so that one just got called out. And there was one before that that I put fairly instrumental in calling out. That was when Corey Good appeared, was right after that. Yeah, Jake, let me, uh, let me just, uh, I'm going to throw it to you. I'm just going to say I regret that we had to mention the blue chickens, but I think that you're on point, Marshall. I think, I think that you're. I think that's an excellent point of view that's worthy of uh, throwing in at the end here. Uh, I really do. I, I think that there's. Uh, I, I wouldn't use the word merit, but I will use the word merit. But uh, Jake, maybe you can tell us your um, your interesting story about if you want to go into the Cobra and maybe even Satlove, and then maybe, uh, your parting words. Well, that's too long for this. Like you think so. It's fine. You don't have to at all. That would have to be like a whole episode in itself, bro. <laughs> we, we do have the Six of Swords for that, my friend. So uh, why don't you uh, throw us your... Uh, Marshall, good on you, mate. I like that. And uh, damn, hadn't considered that. But we're not helping, are we? Maybe we are. Yeah, but, I hadn't considered that either until just now. But yeah. I totally agree with Taylor. This is just the beginning of it. Yeah. So, what are your, uh, Jake, what are your thoughts? Because, okay, we know, they already say that there's plenty more for Hellier that was just season one. But, you know, we had to release those so we could try to get some funding to make season two and all this. So Yeah, it sounds like Blue Chickens are TTSA to me. Yeah, so they're definitely going somewhere with it. And, was, and, so, oh, and then you mentioned the Blue Chickens. I'm like, oh, yeah. And this comes out right when that one's falling apart. And the Q thing's falling apart, which is also related. So, yeah. So maybe that's what we can talk about next time is is these types of psyops or something. We we definitely have an X-Men crew here. I'm going to just go ahead and dub us the X-Men right now because – you guys are gifted, y'all. Just Jesus. <laughs> Minds, they work well together. Um, Jake, do you have any other uh, finishing thoughts on what this is? Or do you have anything else you want to say before I wrap up the, the enchilado? I do want to say that uh, I noticed the sinks were, the synchronicities were increasing even before this came out. You know, that was definitely like getting to feel oh, like. True. Purge of something big is about to happen. The world's going to be very different not too long from now. And so, things like this, I think, is it's happening anyway. And stuff like this, or people trying to control it, 
or control the narrative on it anyway. You know what I mean? To surf that wave. I think that's the, the, the end goal behind it. So I guess like if they can ride the right frequencies or get on board with whatever the zeitgeist is that's now unfolding, that they'll be able to, when it strikes and kind of crystallizes, they'll be in the more king position, whereas the old guard might be shuffled to the bottom of the deck. That, I could see that for sure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one brief um, synchronistic experiment with the three of us right now. I'll be the uh, the the center of the Triforce, and y'all will be the three pieces of the Triforce. What I'm gonna do is, in the right order of uh, Taylor, Marshall, and Jake, which is TMJ, and my jaw is getting tired from all this yakking. What I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna shuffle up a deck. Of these are the Radiant Rider weight. All right. In fact, yeah, you know, I'm getting I'm getting spunky here. So what we're actually going to use is the Masonic tarot deck instead, because I feel an affinity. So I'm going to shuffle off a shuffle up, I guess, and um, <laughs> and um, oy, gavolt. And so um, and then so Taylor, uh, when when uh, when you're ready, you're going to tell me to stop. And then I'll pull that card aside. You see what I'm doing here. And then Marshall, sure. you're going to go next, and Jake for three. So um, this is going to be the reading of whatever encapsulates the talk we just gave. Hopefully, it's going to be able to um, give us some pointers as to uh, what's coming next. And then in hindsight, we'll be able to see if uh, if we David Lynch did. So give me give me a moment to uh, you know really shuffle it up because I have the six of. I have the six of cups up here on the on the facing me the whole time. You know how that goes, but uh, bear with me a moment, and um, I'll say go, and then when you're ready, uh, uh, then we'll do it, Taylor. So cool. uh, one moment, please. And I realize that dead air is charming for a podcast, but deal with here, it. Bro. I got you. Don't worry. Welcome well, to cells. I'm getting fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Some good shuffling sound effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they can picture what's going on in their heads. <laughs> they're uh, they're they're doing Enochian calls while we're doing this quietly. All right, Taylor, when you're ready, tell me when to stop. Okay. And Marshall, when you're ready, tell me when to stop. All right. Stop. Jake, I'm pretty sure. Sh- oh, I thought you said all right as in stop, and I took a Oh, card. that's totally fine. And I thought Marshall meant all right, and that's when that's I took good. a card. No, no, no. Go for it. That's Use perfect. It. So Jake, Jake, when you're ready, tell me. Stop. All right, so um, of course, the one that was for the the bottom of the deck that I'll take for me is actually the Eight of Cups, which is the card that rules my life in my zodiac because I'm a Pisces rising um, first deckhand, and that's the Eight of Cups. So this indicates to me that something went well with this. So I'm going to flip the first card over for Taylor. Uh, We have the Ten of Swords. 
Um, for Marshall, we drew the Three of Swords <laughs> and uh, the Prince of Coins for Jake. So that's a, that's a hell of a, a spread there. Um, that's the that's the uh, the ruin card followed by the sorrow card followed by the knave of coins. <laughs> so um, I guess oh, that man. do any of our tarot fanatics here want to interpret what just happened there? I mean, are are these? something collaborative or is this like a, a future for each of us kind of a thing well this is kind of describing everything that we've been talking about with this huge ritual going on with the uh okay the oto and it ends up with the knave of coins that's the the ending card so what what do you guys make of that the ruin the sorrow and then the the knave of coins which should be Jake. air of earth so what is it? Which is air of Earth. Yep. yep. Um, is it Earth it, of Earth? In my system, it would be Earth of Earth. Okay. It's okay. the princess card, technically. The okay. princess of oh, Earth. Right. Okay. So it's Earth, Earth, Earth. It's the exact opposite. Yeah, it would be... It, <laughs> so it, it's Malkuth, followed by Bina, followed by uh, the princess of Pentacles. So what do we make of this, this crazy fucking reading? Ten of Swords is oh, go ahead. Taylor, uh, you go. Just, gonna, just I was just asking if the Ten of Swords was Malkuth. Uh, yes, the Ten of Swords is the uh, air in Malkuth. Okay, I'm, I'm, intense. I'm curious to hear what what, uh, what Jake thinks on this. I was gonna the first impression that comes to mind, especially with those two particular swords, and then having the Earth to Earth. You know, it's uh, don't think, do. Hmm. Celebrate activity. <laughs> all right don't overthink it you know what i mean yeah yeah hmm. it, is, it is a lot of yeah negative airy airy cards hmm, that's interesting well yeah so the ten of the ten of swords i always just think of as kind of like an end to things you know it's called ruin it's it's usually depicted as usually not in pips but usually depicted as a person being stabbed by ten swords yeah it's, pretty brutal and uh it's it's definitely one of the harshest cards in the tarot yeah it is and the three of swords that's it's called sorrow right it's it's basically like heartbreak it's like yeah, that's usually moving on. three swords stabbing through the heart so yeah so you know it, it's almost like what either you know maybe what we're doing we're, we're doing something analytical right we're looking at hellier we're, we're talking about these synchronicities around it and and kind of breaking that down and analyzing it like uh, some kind of a, you know, solve, right? And I think what we're going to get to is some kind of an earthy foundation, perhaps. If it's leading to, yeah, yeah, something like that, right? So, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe what we're looking at is sort of a metaphor for the, you know, the grand magnum opus of conjoining the, this world with that world kind of thing. I agree. Um, actually, I think that this is a, when we look at it, we don't need to spin it at all. It's kind of a perfect read for what we were talking about. They're, they're putting the final destruction on the old world. It's going to be very tumultuous for most people, this transition. Right. And then they're going to begin. And, now, and then that the princess of earth represents the new beginning. 
Yeah, especially those people that aren't really grounded in reality, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they'll have a firm grasp of what's really going on. And then they're just like swaying with the wind. They're going to have a hard time. They're not going to know what's going on. They're going to get blown every which away, you know? Do we I, uh, go ahead, tell us, Marshall? Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, I think we did. But uh, as we close out the episode, because we're in the final five minutes here, um, I'm going to do one more spread that's going to be concerning the three of us, and I'll choose a card too. Not because okay. I don't like that, and that's that that reading sticks, no yeah. pun intended. But um, Julio, he's got jokes, folks. Um, I'll be here all week. Tip your bartender. Um, I'm going to do one more with the deck I was originally going to do, which apparently has the magician facing, and okay. uh, they were talking about the as above, so speaking below, so. <laughs> what is it? And speaking of air. Yeah, well, t- uh, t- taking this. Um, Taking this in the way, so um, because earlier I was kind of not sure that people were saying win and win, so now we'll be sure. And I'm sure this is interesting to the listener. At this point, they're like with Hellier, they're like, "Dude, come on, this is over, come on." But um, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so That's it, the fun of it though. <laughs> oh, Marshall's back. Hey, hey there he is. Man, my computer straight up died right when Oof. you were in the middle of talking about what the what the ten of swords meant. That's oh, fascinating. Wow. That's crazy. Your computer got ten of swords. Exactly. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know anything about tarot, but I would appreciate you guys, you know, kind of elaborating on that a little bit. Um I- you're you're gonna want to listen to the episode. We just broke it. <laughs> um I'll tell you I'll tell you quickly, Marshall, and then we're gonna do one more uh with uh if you don't mind just the three of us weird magic y dudes doing it. Um and I'll I'll uh, I'll draw the, I'll, whatever the bottom card is. I'll let face for you. Um, just that's how we'll pull this. And then we're gonna end the episode on that note. Um, basically, we we had agreed that what we were talking about with the representation of this episode was that there's some weird magical working that's going down. It's going to basically end the old world, which is the final outcome. The Ten of Swords is like. Uh, in the Rider Weight Tarot deck, it rep- I should say the Rider the the Weight Smith deck, uh, Pamela and Coleman yep. Smith deck. Um, to give respect to Pixie, um, the artist who did the cards, is that it's basically the end. It's just like you know, people look at it negatively. The guy's bleeding out, but his problems are over. You know, that's done. That's one of the main things about that card. It's done. That shit's dead, baby. Then the Three of Swords is representative of the heart being pierced by blades. It's known as sorrow. It's kind of like a heartbreak card. Uh, yeah. If if um, the Earth represents Malkuth, the tenth sphere of the the Sephirah, where the energy of the tens is, the three is in Saturn or Bina, and that is the um, one of the highest. Uh, that's in the top trinity of the tree of life. And then the princess or the um, valet of Pentacles represents Earth, Earth, which is to us seeming to represent. Uh, we're not going to give a shout out to a new earth, but yes, to represent a new earth. So this time we're going to be clear about when we're saying draw a card. So, um, Oh yeah, no, you're going to get the, uh, you're going to get the, the, the bottom card, whatever that is, that'll be for, for you. But, um, so I'm shuffle up, I guessing for the last time the shows in its final stretches, uh, we can stick around and talk afterwards, but for the rest of the audience, the show will end after we explain this deck and say thank you to the people who made Hellier. 
But all right. So Taylor, when you're ready, oh, the 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 Empress just popped out when I said Taylor. I don't know if uh, we're just gonna we're gonna say that's for you, Marshall. That the Empress card is how the entire thing. That's that's the over. It's mother's love, so that's a good sign. So Taylor, you when when you're ready, sure. Um, I'll, I'll I'll say the word stop. Okay. Stop. All right. I'm putting that one down. All right, Jake, uh, if you want to follow the same regards, uh, I'm ready when you are, sir. All right. And I'm going to do this myself. Maybe a card will flip out or maybe it won't, but uh, I'll definitely get down there when I'm done with shuffles. All right. It feels like this one. All right, and then we have um, the bottom card is the Seven of Wands for our friend Marshall, and that's the Valor. So uh, his key to the next changes coming up is to show Valor. But, um, and the Empress is for us all. That's the ultimate ultimate. So, it goes along with my name, right? Marshall Valor. Yes, it does. Oh, yeah, there you go. All yeah, right. This is my ruling card, too, with the Leo Ascendant. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So I just drew the uh, Eight of Cups and the s that's fascinating. <laughs> Seven of Wands. That's interesting. Wait, what? And you and what I have time, the what time of year is that? Oh, he's born on um. Well, this time of day because it's the yeah. Ascendant. Oh, right. okay, gotcha. Yeah, the rising signs far superior to the sun or the moon, but those are the most three important. I'd say just the layman's rules. Okay. All right, Taylor, you ready for the card you drew? Yes. If it's a ten of fucking swords, I swear to God, I quit. All right, <laughs> two of pentacles change. Okay, nice. Jake, three of cups. Nice, nice, nice. Final card is the queen of swords. Another court card. Okay, she's uh she's an interesting one there. But mm -hmm. I'll tell you this: my mom drew a tarot card for me this weekend. She does once a week, and it was the queen of swords. And we began the whole thing with the empress. So, anyways, fair enough. So this reading was two of uh, pentacles, three of cups, and the queen of swords. So she's the water of air, and this is the six of cups on the six of swords. But yeah, I don't, I don't really, uh, I'm not going to say much. What do you, Taylor, what do you make of that then, Jake? And then I'll go, and then we'll end it. Well, two of coins uh, I would usually see as, as change and, and kind of like um, that sort of flow um, leaning into different things as, as new opportunities arise and stuff like that. Um, for me, for instance, I know that that's kind of come along with like opportunities, like, you know, being on this podcast, for instance, or doing the things I do at my job or, you know, creating a tarot deck, all these different opportunities that have come up in my life. And, you know, the three of cups, uh, I always see as sort of a party, right? It's abundance. It's kind of like, you know, bringing people together and sort of sharing in, in this moment and this kind of splendor and uh, which reminds me of a cool song. That's a story for another day. And then is that, uh, is that, um, is that off lateralis? The one you're thinking of? Yeah. Parabola. Parabola. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and then what was the last card? The uh, queen of swords, queen of swords. That's that, a tricky. Yeah. She always strikes me as someone who's, um, fierce and uh, powerfully smart, someone who is kind of cutting through the bullshit and sort of uh, uh, taking, you know, 
taking what needs to be taken, taking, you know, taking the throne kind of a thing. She's calculating. That's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, how would you combine that before we move on to Jake? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, you know, it kind of seems like, um, perhaps things in our lives are changing towards, uh, more collaborative efforts, uh, that will help, um, sort of shove a sword into, um, the mainstream worldview and break it down and, uh, claim what needs to be claimed. Fair enough. Um, I'll add that um, when I was watching, so we just did two tarot readings and they did two in Hellier. I think I, that's somehow fitting yep. now that I look at it. I, uh, when I, I had a synchronicity where I looked at the bottom of my deck or uh, whatever happened, they had on the bottom of their deck on the second reading, the Prince of Cups. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I happened to draw that card as, as they did that. So that was a weird sync. And uh, so Jake... Uh, what's uh, what's our take on the the forecast? Here's Tom with the weather. What's going on, Jake? You with us? That might be frozen. Yeah, that's. It seems like <laughs> it seems like he, he got the first Marshall, then Jake. We um, I'll I'll just go on uh, while we're waiting for him to um, beam back into this dimension. But um, I I just want to make clear that I oh. did. Yep, there he goes. I did draw the uh, the lovers as a last resort card. So, oh, now we got him back. See, he's reunified with us. Uh, nice. Seems they did not want to. They want me to, to interpret that. But 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 you're uh, back. Yeah, I wanted to say this though more than anything. Yeah, that the two of coins there. Yeah, I can't think of a card. Better card. It perfectly sums up what we've been talking about. Yeah. We're all True. interacting. Like, that's, that's the epitome of that card. You know what I mean? Harmonious change leading to abundance. Yeah, but it's, if you look at it, it looks like two worlds interacting. You know what I mean? Nice. Oh, yeah, like an orbit. Yeah. Great. Oh, that's what it looks like? Yeah. Oh, jeez, man. Oh. You see what oh, I was saying? Yes. I mean, yep. come on. I mean, that message is clear. It's just like Jake said. Yep. And then the Three of Cups, the Three of Cups, it might be my favorite card in the deck. Yep. You know? And that was the one you drew. Yep. Oh, <clears throat> and it's the, the celebrations, you know? Nice. Now with the uh, Queen of Swords, that almost changes things in a way. Like that's that's like the odd man out here for sure, mm-hmm. because like uh, especially when I think of the Queen of Swords, I always picture it in the Toth deck because they did such a great job on that deck. Yeah, illustrating that where she's holding the guy's head. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, She's a bad, cold bitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> Wasn't that what the uh, the Aeon of Horus was supposed to represent, though? Was People, it? I would say that like it's it's almost like a brave new world kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I can totally. Yeah, that totally goes with the whole concept of Aeon of Horus, the whole reading there. You know? Yeah, well, it's, it's what you get when you get the incarnation from the Dark Mother instead of the other one, right? And if you think about it, 
because it all because the, the empress came out first. Yeah, so, yeah. Kind of under the aegis of the empress, it's giving birth to a new world, kind of. You know. And I did an after draw too, and we ended up with the lovers. With the lovers, so it perfectly fits with the two uniting again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the opposite of the devil card for sure. It is the opposite of the devil card. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm I'm absolutely fine with uh, saying that we can use the em- like we can use the Empress as well as the um, two of Pentacles, the Three of Cups, the Queen of Swords, and the Lovers card to say that that would be how our draw went. Yeah. Yes. Uh, totally. And I would say it totally fit the theme of the show. Yeah. I, uh, to to throw my two. Uh, my two pentacles in there, my two cents in. Um, I, w- <laughs> I would say that uh, it's harmonious change coming. Uh, you know, we have to we have to keep in mind like the first reading as well, mixed with these. Uh, so the eight cards total, plus if you add the uh, the valor card and the um, the eight of cups, like we'll have to really look at this later. So um, I'll do I'll do something where I'll say that it seems like we're heading towards a definite change in the entire realm. It looks like, you know, we notice how the two middle cards are both threes, one of the swords and one of the cups. And, uh, then we have the queen of swords, which, you know, she does have a cherub and a butterfly on her throne. There's a bird flying. She's holding her sword straight up in this one. But typically, She's uh, and like I said, my mom sent me this card like a day ago, so there's some kind of strange sync there. But I would say that she's obviously a party to um, using the ferocity of her mind, very untempered, just very calculating and logical and almost brutal. Like I'm glad you mentioned the Thoth deck, the Frida Harris, which by the way typically uses the Two of Pentacles for its box art. So. Um, if we if we use that plus the uh, seven of wands and we add the lovers card into that to finish the talk off, I'd say that you know we have to be brave. It really does kind of stri- strike me as a brave new world kind of thing coming. I don't know if it's going to be Huxley's vision, but I would say that we're definitely entering into a rehaunting of the world. And what we need to do is not just pay attention to the synchronicities because we don't know how much is divinity and how much is puppet strings but i would say that maybe if we can be calculating and be cold and understand that we need to be rational about these things as we've done tonight we can enter this new world with an aim towards love if that has to be a choice i would say that that was that would be our guiding light our compass our principle to make sure that true equanimous love actually occurs and is birthed out of these pains that we're going through right now as this new world is born if that is the case that is happening so taylor marshall jake weird guy thank you <laughs> thank you guys so much uh, I'm, I'm gonna say it's uh, i'm the i'm the fox ta- the foxtastic mr fan i think i'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go by that <laughs> guys this has been fantastic it's been foxtastic uh and Thank you so much. We're going to do this again. I can tell we, uh, we are the, uh, we X-Men have great mojo. Bye-bye. So, uh, everyone say goodnight and we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit after we kill the recording. Well, and, and also, okay. Just, 
And just to mention, uh, you know, a, a, a big thank you to, to, you know, the folks who made Hellier. Because oh, you're right. The, the documentary was amazing. That. And I've I watched it twice. I'm probably going to watch it a few more times. It, you know, uh, whether it was, you know, whether it's all true or false, that, that shit was awesome. Yeah, no, that's good. Before we'll, we'll do the goodbyes one more time, but thank you to Carl Pfeiffer, to Greg Newkirk, Dana Newkirk, to Connor James Randall, to Rashad Sizemore, as well as to uh, all of the guys who helped out throughout the show, Steve and um, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, help me out here. What was that guy? Mike uh, Hanks? My, not, well, Micah Hanks too, but uh, who was the <laughs> JT? What's his name? Or, you know? Oh, um, yeah, John Tenney. John Tenney. Uh, yeah. And to anyone else, but to, to, and of course, to Tao. Alan Greenfield. Uh, I'll end with one final sink to bring us uh, truly, uh, we begin again in the form of the Invisibles. Um, which, by the way, I'm just going to put a plug. I'll be doing an Invisibles comic uh, read-through in September. So uh, everyone, pony up your money, get your uh, Invisibles omnibus now. Uh, and in September, we'll be doing a, uh, a participatory read-through. Um, when I began watching Hellier, uh, the day before, I was on a Discord chat with Jake, and someone had shared an interview with T. Allen Greenfield. On that was me. <laughs> that was you. Yeah. Uh, Jake shared uh, an interview with T. Allen Greenfield on Whoa. Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis. I had no idea of the connections. I just happened to watch Hellier the next day. So that brings us truly full circle. So one more time, Taylor, freaking Marshall of Valor, Jake, the back-end god, and uh, again, Foxtastic Mr. Fan, thank all of us. Thank you guys, the X-Men, for doing this, and uh, why don't you all just say goodnight and say uh, whatever you want to say, and we'll do it. Yeah, thanks. thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good evening. We'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. This has been the Six of Cups. Well, that about wraps up the show. As you know, this is the part of the show where those who have donated between $50 and $200 would get their names and messages read. And right now, besides those massive spate of givings that we mentioned in the middle of the show, there's nothing to be mentioned right now. Besides the closing remarks, which I will dispense with as thus. And I do want to say that I hope that everyone who listened to this realizes that we're coming from a place of respect, of curiosity, and wonder, and we deeply appreciate the work. I mean deeply appreciate the work that has been executed, undertaken, and gone into by the entire Invisibles team of Greg and Dana, and Carl and Connor and Rashad, and all of the help that they got, both from names that can be listed and from sources that are slightly beyond the, well, the invisible is where they're at, so they're slightly beyond the visible. But thank you again for listening, and with that, we're going to just get into our closing remarks right now, which basically go as such. So I hope that you enjoyed that. I feel like, as I mentioned in the intro, <laughs> we really had no idea that we were going to go in that direction. But what prompted the whole thing was something that Taylor had said, which was, what do you think about this Hellier series? 
you know, could it possibly be some huge, you know, alternative reality game or something to that effect? And when you read The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, that idea is similarly sort of floated, especially towards the end of the book. Now, like I've said, since we recorded this, I ended up having that book in my possession and I won't say feverishly, but with intensity have read through it already. It's not that long, but it's definitely going to take a few more reads to understand. What I'm left with, basically, to keep this short, is that there does seem to be a Twin Peaksian White Lodge versus Black Lodge scenario going down, unfolding, if you will. And I'm not going to say what I think about who's who or what's what or where's where. That's going to really be up to you to decide. Now, some of our panelists may think that it's all a trick, and I don't know what the devil to make of that. But I will say that there certainly seems to be something not quite Manichaean, you know, maybe Zoroastrianistical, certainly magical, very much mystical. And that's all I can really say right now. I think Hellier bears a few more repeat watchings, just as the uh, book The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts bears a few more readings. So a few more viewings and a few more readings, and maybe you'll even listen to this roundtable discussion a few times yourself. As it is, keep doing the best you can. I think the ultimate purpose of our humanity, and the way I see it, is to be kind, to be loving, and to evolve. You know, power, wisdom, and courage. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.